Happy New Year, deserving listeners. Happy, happy New Year. I've never been as happy as I am now, as I'm sure you have never been as happy as well to put a year behind us, putting 2020 behind us and to move into the future. Today, I thought I would talk about 2020 and also what we're going to do moving on into the future with the podcast. But I wanted to answer patron emails as well. And Colin actually compiled a bunch of emails relating to negativity, meaning that the emails just had something to do with negativity. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, this episode, should I do 2020? And I I don't know, it's kind of boring to just do an entire episode where I talk about what happened last year. So I thought I would answer your emails as well. So I'm going to alternate between those two things. And the negativity emails are not negative emails. Some people thought that, you know, I did a recent episode from this uh, doc here of all the negativity emails that Colin put together. And people thought that they were just a bunch of emails that were negative towards me or something. No, these are all just questions that have something to do with negativity. And so let's get to it. And then, like I said, I'm going to sprinkle in 2020 stuff as we go here. So this first email is from anonymous listener. She says, Dear Dr. Kirk, I greatly appreciated you standing up for the Karens in the world, most of whom are not associated with the negative stereotype. My name is Karen, and I am nothing like these portrayed women. I find it very hurtful, and I have even considered changing my name. I'm sure that I'm not the only Karen who feels this way. I I read a recent article that said, statistically, people named Karen are having a hard time getting online dates because of their names. As a single lady myself, this really sucks. Do you have any advice for Karens dealing with the negativity attached to their names? End of email. Yeah, this is terrible. Uh, Imagine if this was your name. Whatever name you have, just imagine that the internet was using your name to describe terrible human beings caught on camera. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was kind of funny. I saw it, and I guess this is part of 2020, but I feel like it might have been before that. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. Yeah, because, you know, most Karens are a certain age, right? And the, and I, I just, you know, look at this Karen that did this thing. And I just thought, oh, you know, it's, I guess that's kind of clever. The second time I saw it, I thought, oh, no, you, you can't use someone's name that way. <laughs> you, and, it, and it really just has to stop. And then I just saw it take off. I mean, it lingered on Reddit for a long time. I remember, I don't know if, where it originated from, but I remember seeing the whole Karen thing kind of under the radar for a while. And, and I remember just thinking, no, you can't. <laughs> uh, as an older person myself that has a lot of people my age named Karen, I thought, you can't do that to a name. Just because a very minority of humans are named Karen doesn't mean you can pick on them just because they're a minority, you know? And it's I find it to be ageist. Online culture is obviously dominated by younger people. And so there's not a lot of Karens who are younger and because it, you know, it's a name that fell out of style or, or it was peak at peak uh, popularity probably 50 years ago, you know, in terms of baby names. I don't know. I don't know the stats, but I'm just going to take a guess on that. Anyway, but it's an ageist thing of just any – because what, what what ended up happening is basically any woman that was caught on camera doing something that we could make fun of or something that we could shame as an internet 
uh, crowd, we would say, oh, that's a Karen, even if it was a 15-year-old girl or something. It just became expanded to anyone to the point where sometimes they would say, look at this male Karen. <laughs> they would say, look at this man Karen. And I'm like, what are you people doing? There's got to be a better word for an a-hole caught on camera. Why, why are you saying Karen? Like, I, I understand, like, that's the trend, but th- that's someone's name. You, you can't use that, that person's name. People are stuck with their names, you know? The other thing is, is it's sexist. And I said this a long time ago, that there's no name for a guy caught on camera who is a jerk face. And, you know, people say, oh, there is a name. You know, they call it like a Scott or I don't know what they call it. But the name certainly has not caught on. And certainly whatever name they're using for the male counterpart of the Karen is, you know, those people with those names probably aren't worried about changing their name at this point. And it's ageist, it's sexist. And there are other examples as well. I mean, ageism goes all directions. The, the word, so I'm old enough to remember when the term millennial was coined. And at first it was like, oh, you know, it's just people born at a certain time. We're, we're now going to call them millennials because the millennium was this really big deal. You know, Y2K, all this sort of thing. And I thought, oh, okay, we're going to call them millennials because, you know, I'm Gen X and you have the baby boomers and da, da, da. But now after, I don't know, 20 years of it being in popular usage, the word millennial is is an insult. To call someone a millennial is to call them bad, you know, it's associated with bad things, with being entitled or narcissistic or always on their phones or self-important or a hipster or something, you know, just say, oh, look at those millennials over there. And that's ageist too. Or when, you know, people say, okay, boomer, that's an ageist thing to to say of people my parents' age to, to just, it's one thing to say, uh, to identify an older person who is mansplaining or an older person who's being a jerk face and say, okay, boomer. But the, the phrase would get used to, to just make fun of older people. Like, you know, an older person that's trying to figure out how to use their phone. Okay, boomer. It's like, come on, people. Like, pull your head out of your butts. Like, do you not understand ageism? In the same way that you can't just call an, you know, an Asian person, you know, also, you, you know, you can't do that. You can't, uh, it's hurtful. It's wrong. It's immoral to just make fun of a group of people to put them down. It's not okay. <laughs> just, I mean, unless it's the Nazis, go ahead and make fun of the Nazis, but don't make fun of people aged 60 to 75. You don't just lump all those people in and just be like, okay, you idiots, you boomers, or everyone aged, I don't know how old millennials are, but uh, however old millennials are, you can't just, you know, okay, millennials, you know, this sort of thing has got to stop. And the whole thing with Karen has got to stop. And I'm quite positive in 50 years, they're going to look back on a lot of these things that we're doing today. And they're going to be like, wow, we were pretty ageist back then. And we had sexist things that were still happening in our society. And so you can do your part, listeners, and not participate in it. There's a lot of things that we can make fun of. There's a lot of jokes we can make. We do not have to make them at the expense of others. We do have to think about how the jokes affect other people. In the same way that you can't make a joke about Polacks or Polish people, 
and you can't make a joke about blondes and you can't make a joke about black people. You can't make a joke about Karens. It's a, it's a, Karens is even a smaller group of people. And, and the name Karen spans many different ethnicities in, in the Western world. And in, in my neck of the woods, there's a lot of different uh, ethnic groups represented by the name Karen in my community. So you're not even making fun of white people, okay? You're making fun of a lot of people named Karen. And it's it just, it's really just dumb. And it's, I find it to be, it, you know, it's one thing for it to live on the internet where, because there was this whole movement of calling people Chads and Stacys and this kind of thing within the incel community. And my wife's name is Stacy. But it was such a small thing. There weren't a lot of people that, under, that knew this very small niche group on the internet were calling people Chads and Stacys, and there were other names they were using. Chads and Stacys were like frat boys and girls, essentially, if I remember right. But my wife never heard of it, she, you know, and when she did, she's like, oh, that, whatever. The Karen thing has really exploded. Um, now, there's still people that don't know about the Karen thing, like Bob, for example. He doesn't pay attention to these things. And he he doesn't know about the Karen thing. <laughs> but, but anyway, yeah, uh, so you can do your part by not participating in it. If you, if you want to have a label for a jerk face older woman – then just say jerk face older woman <laughs> or, or something like that, at least as a phrase that describes it, that identifies. Now, we're not just talking about older women named Karen. We're talking about jerk face, jerk faces, you know, and, and we have plenty of words to insult people, you know, entitled, uh, narcissistic, not the disorder, but the, you know, the, the descriptor of humans. We have a lot of words available to us. We don't have to use someone's name. <laughs> just like, ugh, okay. So how do we deal with it? Well, the one thing I'll say to you, Karen, is a lot of people have names that cause problems for them. So you have now been lumped in with a lot of other people. I have a, I have a friend named Dong, a Korean friend. His name is Dong. And I have Chinese, you know, other people have names like Wang or these, you know, these kinds of names. And they have issues, right, that their name is instantly giggled at. My name is mildly uh, a problem in society. When I, when I was younger, Kirk, you know, there's a lot of Captain Kirk jokes. But the main one, of course, is Honda. When, when people find out that my name is Honda, especially when I'm outside Seattle, it's all sorts of jokes. Oh, Honda, like the car, you know, it's... It gets really cumbersome after a while. I don't you – know, it's not a big deal when it happens, but you know when you're just like, you know, hey, can I take your name down because you want to take a reservation at a restaurant? And you just want to give them the name and you just want to move on with your life. You don't want to have to deal with some kind, of, some kind of joke or some kind of like where I have to courtesy laugh. And every time I say my name, I brace myself for what is going to happen. Most people are fine. And it's getting better because the United States, I think people are just more aware of non-Anglo Anglo names. You know, saying a name like Anderson or Johnson or, you know, those kinds of names don't get a lot of uh, uh, comments because those are considered to be normal names, right? But, but because we're becoming a more uh, diverse society, quote-unquote normal names have expanded in some communities. Like I said, as soon as I step outside Seattle, and even if, even on the East Coast, because there aren't a lot of Asians in the East Coast, 
I'll get more comments. But anyway, so yeah, Karen, someone named Dong, someone named Wang. You're there's a lot of people who deal with this, and uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have feelings, but uh, welcome to a, a, a club of people. We welcome you, Karens. The Dongs and the Wangs of the world welcome you into into their club. Uh, now, so you're saying uh, change your name? Well, maybe uh, you know, but to me. Anyone who judges you because of your name, then, you know, if you're online and someone sees your name and they don't want to date you because of your name, then good effing riddance. What kind of an idiot on Tinder or whatever online dating service you're using doesn't want to date someone because their name is Karen? That has got to be a stupid person that you just do not want to even bother with. So... Consider your name to be a wonderful screening tool to get rid of the tools. <laughs> the last thing I'll say is stand tall. Stand tall. Do not let the idiots rule the world. Do not let the ageists and the sexists and, frankly, the immature children. Because a lot, a lot of the Internet, the traffic is, you know, it's, it's children. It's 15-year-olds. Do not let immature 15-year-olds who don't have a fully developed sense of empathy yet change how you feel about yourself or how you live your life just because your name is Karen. Stand tall. You're a, you are a Karen, and you're a wonderful person, and you don't deserve to be treated this way. And anyone who thinks that you know something's wrong with you because of your name, then you just shoot right back to them in the same way that when people say, to me, oh, Honda, uh, you must own the, you know, do you, do you drive a Honda? They'll say like that. And, you know, I just lean into it. I'd be like, actually, I own the company and I could buy your restaurant. You know, like I'll, I'll make jokes like that. I'll just be like, Haha, yeah, or, or I'll say the opposite. I'll say like, that, you know, if, if they'll ask me, I'll be renting a car, for example. And they'll, they'll say, oh, Honda, so do you own the company? And I'll, I, I'll say something like, if I own the company, I wouldn't be at this rental uh, office. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'll just be like, no, if I own the company, I wouldn't be dealing with you right now. <laughs> um, you know, just, just find some power in it. People say, oh, you're a Karen. And you'd be like, well, actually, Karens are really nice people. And I don't appreciate people using my name as an insult. You know what, you know, or whatever you say, Karen, but own it and do not let these bullies make you feel bad about who you are and your name. And I'm guessing you liked your name prior to this moment and your parents named you that for a reason and people love you and associate your name with who you are. And we're not going to be bullied. We're not going to let the, you know, what I've been calling the idiots uh, dictate how we see ourselves and how we live our lives. Stand tall. You're a good person and your name is Karen. All right, let's talk about 2020 for a second. Of course, I have to start off with all the negative things that happened this year. Obviously, COVID is just unprecedented. Uh, it feels normal now, but just think back to a life when we didn't have to live this way, and we also didn't know we were going to have to live this way. 
I had heard scientists and epidemiologists talk about how a superbug was coming or some kind of pandemic was coming our way. But it's sort of like when you hear about astronomers talking about like eventually a huge asteroid is going to hit the Earth or people, you know, geologists saying eventually a big earthquake is going to hit Seattle. And you think, okay, yeah, uh, I believe that. It, I hope it doesn't hap- happen, but yeah, I mean, inevitably it's going to happen, right? But you just don't, or for me anyway, think it's going to happen soon or it's even going to happen in my lifetime. But it happened and here we are. And uh, depending on where you're living, you know exactly what I'm dealing with and I know exactly what you're dealing with. <laughs> We're all in this together. The loneliness... And then the hope of the vaccine right now, Uh, we're looking at a possibility with enough people vaccinated by mid-2021, maybe, you know, by the fall 2021, where life can go back to normal, where the rates of infection are very, very small, and most people are vaccinated, and there's enough immunity going around out there that it's just not happening. Uh, But who knows? could mutate, a totally different virus could come down the pipeline for us, and uh, we might be locked down for a long time. I don't know. I'm sort of preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. So we'll put 2020 behind us in that way. And then all the loneliness that happens from this. I mean, Americans, as a lot of you will attest to, are lonely and Anyway, and then you add this on and you're even more lonely. And I know Americans aren't the only lonely people on the planet. So, you know, there's a lot of lonely people out there. But, you know, the election happened and Black Lives Matter happened. Black Lives Matter, a good response to a terrible thing that has been plaguing our society for a long time. And... I never would have thought that Black Lives Matter would become mainstream. You know, walking around in my neighborhood, there are a lot of black... I know there's a lot of white people in my neighborhood, and a lot of them have Black Lives Matter signs still in their front lawn or their window or something. And I never would have thought that when Black Lives Matter first emerged, I don't know, five years ago, or it came on my radar back then, I thought... Okay, I get it. And yes, I'm absolutely behind this movement, but it'll never catch on. <laughs> no one will understand that. You know, and this is why when the death of George Floyd happened, I heard about some, I remember hearing about some uh, protests going on in uh, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, right? And I thought, okay, yeah, good for them, but it's you know we've been here before. There have been other deaths like this before. There have been other uh, protests before, and nothing seemingly is changing, or it's not changing fast enough. Things are changing, kind of, you know, with more badge cams, this kind of thing. Uh, other police officers not necessarily getting away with things when you know, so there were changes, but not fast enough, clearly, and. When I remember when the first protests started happening, happening, I just I just didn't really pay attention to it because I didn't want to get my hopes up because I so many other times I thought, oh, something's happening. 
something's happening here. You know, uh, we need to, I need to get behind this because this is, we finally reached that point where we, we all need to do something, you know, we all need to speak up. And uh, so I thought, you know, nothing's going to happen. And then I remember the protests got even bigger. And then there, there was the thing that really kicked it off for me was seeing helicopter footage of a police precinct on fire. I thought, whoa, <laughs> like I haven't seen that before. And then I started seeing protests happening immediately in Seattle and, you know, in other cities. And I thought, oh, wait, has have people finally woken up to this? And by extension, have white people finally woken up to this? Because black people have been speaking out about this for centuries, <laughs> you, know, for, you know, for decades. Uh, but have, have have enough white people finally understood that they are also protesting? Are the young people activated? Are, do do young people today actually have it in them to f- see this thing through to the end? And I thought they do. <laughs> you know, in my town, it's mostly white people, Seattle, and uh, the protests were largely crowds of young white people. Uh, and because they're the mainstream, they're the majority and they hold all the power, white people or most of the power, that's when things start to change. And I was, uh, very surprised and and very happy to see. Uh, Now one could argue that things still have not really changed. Uh, Like, you know, one of the dominant narratives that comes out of this is defund the police. You know, everyone's like focusing on that, especially on the right. And, the issue, and if depending on your sophistication level, this might be either uh, speaking down to you or speaking up to you. I don't know, but this focus on defunding the police is just silly. What what we need to do, what we need to be focusing on, and, and I know some police departments are, is reform. And if reform doesn't, and if outcomes don't change, then getting rid of people and starting over. That's not defunding. It doesn't. It doesn't mean getting rid of the police. Some people think that. Some people say we should just get rid of the police. But no, no one I know says let's get rid of the police. They're just saying let's change the police. And but let's not delude ourselves into thinking that we can just say let's change the police and the police will change because we've been saying it for decades and the police have not changed. So maybe we need to actually get rid of the police and start over with a brand new group of people because the culture. It, you know, you can you can have all these new fancy hiring techniques and trainings that you make everyone go to, but until the culture of the power structure is dismantled, the patriarchy and the white supremacy will continue. Anyway, so Black Lives Matter, you know, it was a, a good thing. It's sad that it had to happen from the death of an innocent person uh, in front of everyone in broad daylight while people filmed. It's just a tragedy. But it is a good sign that our society is convulsing with positive change. Uh, Other things are climate change, still changing. (laughs) Wildfires, you know, if you can remember the wildfires of 20, especially, you know, if you're on the West Coast, you remember the wildfires. And for those of you who don't know, in Seattle, you know, we've always occasionally had wildfires around Seattle. But never to the degree we've had in the past three or four years where an 
now it's a regular thing. Last summer we didn't have that, or two summers ago we didn't have this, but maybe three or four out of the last five, four or five summers, a whole month of Seattle in the middle of summer, you can't go outside. Summer is our is Seattle's best time. Summer from like July 1 to mid-September, it's wonderful weather. It's not too hot. It doesn't get cold. It's sunny out. There's all these hikes you can go to and kayaking and and you know, of course, we're pandemicking at the time, and so we couldn't leave. But not only did we have that, but you know, the so the one thing that I'll just speak personally, the one thing that me and my wife had during the lockdown in the summer was we could go on hikes, we could go on walks, we could go to the beach, we could do these little day trips and stuff, and we still weren't around other humans, or we could hang out with other humans in open spaces you know we could go to a big park and hang out with other people and for i don't know three or four weeks in seattle the smoke was so bad from the wildfires that we couldn't even leave our house and the the air quality of in your house was bad as well to the point where there's no clouds in this if you if you're not from you know if you're if you've never dealt with this just to give you an idea so no clouds in the sky but you can't see the sun for for like three weeks imagine that no clouds in the sky, you can't see the sun. That's how much smoke there is. So much smoke that when you walk out your front door and you look down the road, you can only see like four blocks before there's too much smoke and you can't see anything. It, 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 that's how much smoke was in the air. So much smoke that in your own house, you smell smoke and you can see the smoke kind of just hanging in the air. Not for a day. Not for a week, multiple weeks. So this is bad, obviously, and it's a symptom of a worse thing, which is wildfires, which is a symptom of an even worse thing, which is climate change and forest management and people being stupid with fires. One of the wildfires was sparked by someone who was doing a gender reveal in the middle of the uh, you know, wilderness and it had a firework or something that went wrong. And it, at least that was the story that was told. I don't know if it's accurate. But anyway, point is, is that that's a depressing negative thing as well, is climate change uh, in addition to the pandemic. <laughs> While I'm on the negative, so, you know, I want to get to the, I guess, the positive side of, of the new year. But I, I want to have an in memoriam here. Uh, I actually took some time to... Uh, keep track of everyone who had passed in 2020. And these are just alphabetical order. Of course, you have Alex Trebek, Jeopardy host, beloved Je Jeopardy host. Alina Gabosh, I've talked about her before. She's a leader in Seattle for sex positivity. I actually had her on the podcast 12 years ago. Benny Mardonis, a musician, sang Into the Night, which is essentially a child sexual assault song, but I love the song anyway. <laughs> uh, it, you know, I'd sing it, but I'd butcher it. But the lyrics are terrible, and but the song is beautiful. Bill Withers died, musician of Ain't No Sunshine and Lean On Me. Uh, wonderful musician. Uh, Bonnie Pointer of The Pointer Sister died. Brian Dennehy, actor, you might remember him from movies like First Blood. He's been in a lot of stuff. Buck Henry, 
he wrote The Graduate and many other movies. He was actually one of the first Saturday Night Live cast members. Carl Reiner, actor, director, Dick Van Dyke Show, The Jerk, these kinds of things. A colleague of mine, Carol Stanley, died, actually. She was a professor at Antioch, and she was a friend of mine, and she died. Chadwick Boseman, actor, Black Panther, actually just watched uh, randomly. I was just flipping through the channel with channels with my wife, and we, we watched Get On Up, the story about James Brown, Chadwick Boseman. Uh, he'll be missed. Really, just a, just a tragedy. Charlie Daniels, musician of The Devil Went Down to Georgia. That song was gigantic when I was, I don't know, nine years old. Chuck Yeager, a test pilot, very famous test pilot, died this year at the age of 97. Uh, David Prowse was Darth Vader's body actor. He died. David Roback was the guitarist for Mazzy Star. Uh, and actually, if you watch my live uh, YouTube shows occasionally, not occasionally, maybe once or twice, I play, um, you know, Fade Into You. Fade, yeah, Fade Into You, right? Fade Into You. Um, I love Mazzy Star. I love that album. Diana Rigg died. She's an actress. You might remember her from Game of Thrones, Olena Tyrell, but she, she's been on a million things. Don Shula, the coach for Miami uh, Dolphins. Very distinctive hat that you would wear in the 80s. Eddie Van Halen, of course, died, which is tragic. Elizabeth Wurzel, she wrote Prozac Nation. She died at, uh, of breast cancer at 52. Ennio Mar- Maricon, I don't know, I don't, Maricon, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but um, he's the movie composer for Western, spaghetti westerns, you know. Da 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 da, wah wah wah. He, he wrote all that stuff. Frankie, Frankie Benali, he was the drummer for Quiet Riot. He died. Fred Willard, actor from Waiting for Guffman and a bunch of other things. Uh, it, really just a wonderful actor, very funny guy. Grant Imahara, he was the Japanese-American guy in Mythbusters. He died at the age of 49 of a brain brain aneurysm, which was just really terrible. He's like exactly my age, um, another Asian-American guy, just like, yeesh. Hal Wilner, or Vilner, he was a musician on SNL. Helen Reddy, Australian-American singer in the 70s and other decades. You might remember her from the song I Am Woman. Herman Cain, politician, died COVID-19 after exposing himself at a super spreader event, a, um, a uh, rally for Trump, and uh, he tragically died. Ian Holm, a wonderful actor from all sorts of things, Alien, Lord of the Rings, Brazil. Uh, he died at age of 88. Ifrin Khan, actor of, actor, uh, wonderful actor, Life of Pi, you might remember him in. James Randi, skeptic, died at 92. Uh, I actually met him in person, a very important figure in the skeptical movement. Uh, Actually, a friend of mine died. Her name was Jenny, died very tragically. Jerry Stiller, Ben Stiller's father, actor, he died at the age of 92. Jim Lair from... PBS died at 85. Kelly Nakahara, uh, and she was an actress who was on the TV show MASH. She was a nurse. 
uh, she died. Ken Osmond was Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. He died this year. Kirk Douglas, uh, an actor in so many movies and producer of so many movies, father of Michael Douglas. And Kirk Douglas was in Spartacus and all sorts of things. Uh, actually, if you remember when we did the episode about um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Kirk, Kirk and Michael Douglas had a big part in getting that thing produced. Kobe Bryant, of course, basketball, helicopter crash, very tragic, and his his daughter and everyone else who was in the helicopter. Little Richard, the musician, died at the age of 87. Lynn Shelton, a Seattle film director, beloved Seattle film director, she died at the age of 54, tragically. Mary Kay Letourneau, if you remember her, she was famous for abusing a student and then years later marrying him. Uh, she abused a. I think he was a. I think he was in fifth grade while he she was raping him. Anyway, she died this year, age of fifty eight. Uh, Max von Sydow. He was an actor, very prolific actor. You might remember him from Game of Thrones. He played the three eyed raven. He died this past year. Neil Pert, another drummer for Rush, very beloved drummer uh, for Rush, one of the best drummers of all time. Uh, behind me, you, if you watch my videos on YouTube, you might see various albums that I kind of rotate in and out, and one of them is Moving Pictures, which is an album I listen to all the time when I was nine years old. Pat O'Day was a uh, DJ for KJR, a local radio show, uh, radio station. Pat O'Day was, you know, back before you had TV the way it is today, and of course the internet. You had radio, and radio DJs were were huge because in the car, that's who you listen. You know, there's maybe a tour in Seattle in the '70s and '80s. There was you know two or three radio stations that were worth listening to, and KJR was the biggest one, and Pat O'Day was big on that. Regis Philbin, of course, you know you remember who he is. Died at the age of 88. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Tragic death, pancreatic cancer, apparently, 87. Scott Lillianfield, a skeptic psychologist, died this year at the age of 59. Very important figure in in evidence-based psychology. Sean Connery died, actor, of course, from James, James Bond movies and others, age of 90. Stuart Kornfeld, a film, produ- film producer, lots of Ben Stiller's movies. Ben Stiller lost both his colleague Stuart Kornfeld and his father this past year. Tommy Tiny Lister, he was an actor. He's a very big guy. You might remember him from movies like Friday. He was the big the big kind of bully in, in Friday, the movie Friday. He died of COVID, actually. And Wilford Brimley, actor of many things, including Cocoon. He died at the age of 85. There's actually a, kind of a joke about Wilford Brimley. So the the big thing that he was in that I remember him from was Cocoon, and this is a movie from the eighties. So, in the so that you think in in eighties, he's supposed to be he's supposed to be playing an old guy. He the joke about him is he always looked like he was seventy years old, even when he was forty. And uh, what's interesting is you know me and people my age will be like we're older than Wilford Brimley was when he played the part in Cocoon. <laughs> Anyway, 
but yeah, a lot of a lot of deaths this past year, uh, important people, notable people, and uh, just uh, there's probably more, but those are the ones that I could put together in this list right now. So I could go on and on about all the other negative things, but let's take a break and we get back. Let's answer more emails and maybe move on to the positive side of life. All right, we're back from the break. So let's get into some of the positive things of 2020. There are a lot of positive things that we could identify. We can look to all the heroes, and they are really heroes. And I know sometimes you overuse that word. We are not overusing that word when it comes to our healthcare workers, the researchers, mail carriers, the people who volunteered their time for the election and to count all the all the votes and to you know be threatened by people uh, for counting votes. All there's so and there's so many others that the people who fought the wildfires, uh, politicians who actually tried to help humanity in a variety of different ways. There, there there's so many individual stories of goodness and positivity we focus way too much on the negativity in the news so many so many good things uh, i have a friend uh, it's not really a close friend but i know him well enough to know that he works in uh, manhattan he's a surgeon but he was you know uh, put to work for covid you know when that uh, when a lot of hospitals were filling up with people in in new york and he just recently got vaccinated and he said that after he got vaccinated, he sat in the stairwell and cried for 20 minutes. And I, I don't know, you know, exactly what he was crying about, but I can imagine what it is. Just the, I think, I, I just can imagine, I, could, I, I can imagine myself crying in a situation like that, just thinking I have been, you know, because he he has been in this constant state of fear about getting COVID, he's seeing all these horrible things. A lot of people dying in his hospital, and every day he, when he goes to work, he has to you know use PPE and do all the protocols, and then worry like crap, did I get it today? Because you know there are people working frontline who do all the right things and they still get it, and just have that terror as you're working every day and you're you're heading into the fires every day. And then one day you get this vaccine and you're pretty likely to not get it at this point. You know, there's a pretty high likelihood that if exposed, uh, you know, you continue to follow PPE, but you're not, uh, you're a lot less likely to get it. And just to have that relief, uh, that's why I would cry in a situation like that. And I would also cry for the future, just seeing this, the end of the, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. You just break down and cry. You fall to your knees and cry. You're like, oh, we've we finally crested the hill kind of a thing. Anyway, so there are so many positive things that we can say. And I know you've heard a lot of the stories. And, and let's all just take, a time, take our time to acknowledge that. And pat yourself on the back if you're one of those people. I know some of you are out there listening. And, you, you know, you just really can't hear that enough. Uh, medical workers typically go into that profession because they want to help people. And 
so many of them realized that mission in life this year. So that's great. Uh, some stuff about the podcast, you know, it's, it's a, it was a pretty big year for the podcast too. And I think I've told this story before, maybe during a live show, but I feel like I need to recap what happened to the podcast this past year. (laughs) Um, I don't know if this interests you at all, but I just feel like I'm probably never going to talk about it again. So I might as well get it out of the way here. So yeah, big, big year for the podcast. And let me, I feel like I just want to tell the the story ramping up to this year. So prior uh, years, whenever I would record the podcast, I, I, I I use my desktop computer. I always use, I always, for the most part, use my desktop computer to record the podcasts. And I, when, when I record the podcast, especially when people would come over to my house, they would just come over to my house. Right. And I would set up the microphones. And so I'd have to plug everything in and, and I don't use like USB. A lot of people, they just use USB microphones where you just plug it just straight in. But I actually use preamps and proper mics with proper mic cables and proper mic stands. You know, it's pretty elaborate because I don't know, I'm a musician and I come from that world and I just want everything to be that sort of thing. Plus, because I'm a musician, I, I have all the mics and all the mic stands and the mic cables and the preamps and the, all the compression and all that stuff. Anyway, so whenever I would record, even by myself, I would have to pull out the microphone stand, plug everything in, and it would it would kind of be a, a process, especially, like I said, when I had people over. I would have to get all the you know stands out of the garage and so you know it was kind of a thing and i i was getting tired of it <laughs> after doing it for 12 years that way or 11 years or so i was just like there's got to be a faster way and i you know and i knew that other podcasts and radio shows for that matter would have these microphones that would clip onto a table right you'd have this a boom mic uh thing and I thought well, maybe I should do that. You know, maybe I'll get uh, these these sort of permanent microphones that are always set up, so that when people come over, I don't have to set anything up for them. And so I started working on that. So this all plays into eventually making reaction videos. That that's what kind of what I'm leading up to. <laughs> and so I was also we were doing a lot more of these Dungeons and Dragons episodes. We were doing them like every other week and to set up four microphones and then to make sure everyone, you know, cause everyone needs a table cause they need to have their character sheet and their books and they're rolling their dice and stuff. And so it was really elaborate and it was really a process. And sometimes I would actually lose entire episodes because I didn't have a backup because setting up a backup in addition to setting up all the microphones and all the chairs and making sure everyone has a, you know, water and blah, blah, blah just wasn't convenient for me. And so a big part of me just wanted to streamline my whole podcast setup situation. But going back even further, when I first started the podcast, I kind of treated the podcast like it was this, this real extra thing that I did during the week that it was this small little thing. You know, I was a professor, I had my clients, I had my supervisees, I had my life. And then this podcast was, was, you know, it was just this little tiny thing that I did on the side. And so I didn't want to waste too much money on it. I didn't want to waste too much time or too much of my living space to it, for example. And 
uh, but you know, because people became patrons of the podcast at an increasing rate, particularly, so maybe I should even go back to last year, 2019, midway through the year when I released the attachment deep dive episodes. That really uh, had a, a big following as well. So, uh, and that increased a lot of the patrons, which made it easier to dedicate more time and money and uh, space in my office to the podcast. So maybe going back to then. So thank you, all you patrons. You know, when you become a patron, you you literally change my life <laughs> and the ability to, for me to actually focus on making podcast episodes instead of like all the other things that I have to do to, to actually pay my bills. And, um, you know, and so anyway, because more patrons, I, I was like, well, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to maybe buy some proper equipment, maybe dedicate part of my office specifically to the podcast. Anyway, we are playing Dungeons and Dragons and we are thinking about maybe uh, uh, doing Twitch where we would play Dungeons and Dragons on Twitch. Cause you know, it was a big deal, especially when, that Mercer guy, that critical whatever thing was, was really big hit. I don't know if it still is, but we were thinking about doing that. And so I was like, Oh, well, Hmm. If we do Twitch, I'm going to have to get cameras and I'm going to have to, everything, you know, is going to have to look good. The, I have to have a backdrop that looks good. Cause you know, my office, the backdrop, it doesn't look good. And so I'd have to get like curtains and all this other stuff. And so I started thinking about that. And then this is all coinciding with me starting to want to do Q&A events with the listeners. This would have been, I don't know, a couple years ago maybe. And I maybe a year and a half ago, someone suggested that I start a Discord channel and so or a server. And I started a Discord and I started advertising it. And Discord, if you're not aware of it, it's just a... Uh, like a chat forum essentially and you have these different channels where you can have these different chats going on and for example on our discord we have a uh, channel that is just for people's pictures of their pets <laughs> you know so people can just post pictures of the pets in that channel another channel is for people asking questions to me directly and then i you know answer them and so as a part of a way of promoting this Discord, I thought I would do this Q&A event for an hour every week, and I would do it on Thursdays. Um, sort of backing up on that, whenever I do anything on the podcast, I usually try to make it a regular thing. I don't – first, I don't know why this – it's a personality trait of mine. It's There's pros and cons, but – I don't like doing things and being undependable. When I start something, I like to be very dependable. I like, I don't like being seen as a, as a flake. I don't like to be seen as a flighty person. When I commit to something, I say, I'm committing to this. For example, when I started the Tuesday Tougher Bluff game on the Facebook official fan, or the, the, the official Facebook page, the Psychology in Seattle Facebook page, I started that Tuesday Tougher Bluff game, if you're aware of it. Now, I, I do it on YouTube now, too. I started that, I don't know, 10 years ago-ish. And I've been doing it every Tuesday, regardless of what's happening in my life. I do it every Tuesday. <laughs> and I I just like that regularity. When I started the podcast, I wanted to have an episode every week. At, you know, whatever day it was coming out, I want the episode to come out every week at this time regardless of what's happening in my life and regardless of if anyone's listening. I just thought 
because I would listen to other podcasts and they would have these really irregular schedules and it would, it would just bug me. And so when I started doing the discord thing, I thought, okay, I'm committing. And I really thought about what time it should be. And I really tried to figure out based on our main listenership, I was thinking, okay, well, it can't be too late because it'll be too late for people in Europe and it can't be too early because people are still getting up like in Hawaii or in Japan or something. So what's the what's the most average time of day uh, for Seattle? And I, I landed on 2 o'clock p.m. Seattle time, which is, you know, like 5 o'clock in New York and evening in, in France and morning, very early morning in, in Japan, <laughs> Um, like middle of the night in Japan. Anyway, point is, is that I did two o'clock on Discord on Thursdays and I started doing these Q&As and it was a really transformative moment because, well, let me back up even further. (laughs) Um, We did a live event uh, two years ago, three years ago-ish, and people flew in from all over the world to come to this live event and it went really well, this live event. And for the first time, because by that point, there were, I don't know how many hundreds of people listening to the podcast, you know, pretty dedicated people. And you get emails and whatnot, but to, to actually meet fans of the show in person, people who flew from across the world to come to this little stupid live event that me and Berto uh, had at my university, by the way, because I... Uh, I don't have to pay to uh, use uh, my university. <laughs> I, could, I can use my university, uh, the, you know, the big sort of classrooms I can use. And so, anyway, so we had it there and it was so transformative to actually meet people in person. Okay. So then, and, and really, really transformative, like no joke. If like, if you could talk to my wife, she would say, yeah, uh, Kirk it, was transformed by that moment, <laughs> was overwhelmed with, the the feeling of contact with people who think similarly or who appreciate what you're doing. Anyway, so then fast forward to about a year ago and I'm doing this Discord thing. And but so the live events would be once a year kind of a thing, right? And but this Discord thing, it was like every Thursday. And there when I first started doing it, there would only be like 10 people on the Discord, maybe five. But it felt really great to have that, you know, it's one thing to get an email and then you respond or there's a comment on a YouTube video and you reply. It's another thing to be in the moment back and forthing with people, uh, Q&A style, and people are asking me all these really interesting questions. And, and it made for a very interesting time because I, I could just answer the questions right away. And, and people ask some very weird questions that I might not get to normally, you know, if someone has to email me and then I have to get to it anyway. So they uh, would email me this, uh, or they would ask these questions. And then the discord got a little bigger. And then it got to the point where I don't know, there was like 30 people asking questions, and I was getting overwhelmed. And, you know, the questions people ask are very complicated, be- because of the nature of psychology. And I was having to type out my responses and it took way too long. You know, by the time I finished done, finished answering someone's question, there were 10 more questions and I was just, I didn't like it. So I thought there's gotta be another way. And I thought, well, what if I did 
a video where people submitted questions live and then I just verbally responded to the questions. That that would go a lot faster, be a lot easier for me. Well, at this point in the podcast's history, I had done very few videos and really didn't like it. Like right now, I'm I'm slouched over, I'm in the dark, I'm in my office, and I'm I'm talking into the microphone and I don't care about my shirt. I don't care about the lighting. <laughs> I don't care about uh, my, where my eye line is. I don't care about my facial expression. There's a there's an intimacy and a a very relaxed state that I get into when I do audio episodes that I could not reproduce on video. Video was just a completely different thing. It was a lot more nerve-wracking and just so much more involved. I had to make sure that I wasn't slouching and that the lighting was right and that the video camera was good enough and I had to edit everything and it was much larger files. And Anyway, so uh, I had avoided doing anything video. And the only reason why I was even on YouTube was because early in the podcast, like the first couple of years, a, a student of mine, my cat wants to chime in, a student of mine came to me and she, she was a fan of the podcast and she was like, you have to put your episodes on YouTube. And I was like, why? We're, we're, we don't, you know, we're an audio only thing. And she's like, well, that's where I listen to all my things on YouTube. And I was like, really? Some people, they, this is, you know, 12 years ago. I'm thinking people just, they listen to stuff on you. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, fine. And I really resisted it. So, uh, but I did it. And so that was the only reason I, you know, a lot, most podcasts, they don't put their episodes on YouTube, most audio podcasts, I mean, some do, many do, but back then people didn't do it. But anyway, so I thought, well, it's not that hard to just upload episodes, but you know, anyway, so that's why I did it anyway. Uh, sorry for this long, boring story, but you know, I'm a detail oriented person. So, so then I said, okay, I'm going to do YouTube Q and a, and I'll do it Thursdays at two o'clock. But I need to set up a webcam. Like I've never been a webcam person. Uh, my I've always had desktops and you know desktop computers, and I would have laptops too, but they weren't really my primary computer. I just don't like the small uh, typing situation. I don't like the you know the touch pad. I like a good mouse and a big table so I can spread out and a big screen anyway, and a good sound system for that matter. But anyway. So I so okay, you know, I'll do this YouTube live thing. So I figured out how to, I you know, pulled out my webcam, set it up, got everything worked out for YouTube live, and it, and that was even more exciting to have like a hundred people watching and, and asking questions and being able to just verbally respond. It was very nerve wracking, I'll tell you, in in the beginning. It's 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 definitely a different thing for me to do, but you know, I, I got used to it over time and and really liked it. So remember all this I'm saying because eventually we get to the reaction videos, which is you know a pretty big transformative moment for the podcast this past year. So at this point, you know, very few people on YouTube are paying attention. Most of our listenership is on a podcast app, like on your phone, right? But there's you know a growing YouTube audience. In the beginning, there would be like 25 people would listen to an episode on YouTube, and I thought, well, whatever, it doesn't matter. And and, but some people would find us on YouTube and then they would go to their phone and download the, you know, the, they would subscribe to the podcast on their phone. So I thought, yeah, you know, even if it's just 25 people 
listening to an audio episode, maybe because people do a lot of Google searches and this sort of thing. And anyway, so then uh, I decided to do a live event, but I didn't want to do an in-person live event. And I thought, well, what if we did a YouTube live event? And I thought, well, it's our 11-year anniversary, so it's been a year and a half ago. I was like, what if we do 11 hours, me and Umberto? Berto comes over here. So then I had to figure out, okay, i got to get a camera for him. I've got to get lights for him. And so that further – further, and and if you're aware of what webcams and YouTube Live and all that stuff, just – then you know all this stuff. But if you don't, and you probably don't, all of these things require so much IT knowledge and equipment and problem solving. I, I could go on for days – about how annoying it is to deal with internet stuff and computer stuff. Like to for many of you, you're just like, well, don't you just turn on a switch and record and then you're done? No. <laughs> there, there is so much BS that me and the rest of the team have to deal with on a daily basis just to get stuff out there. Um, now, can you just flip on a switch sometimes? Sure, but it'll sound bad. It'll be edited bad. It, it, you know, anyway... Point is, is that there's a lot of annoyances that you have to deal with, and by you know incrementally getting used to video cameras, incrementally getting used to lights, incrementally getting used to having a podcast set up in my office, then Amber Heard and Johnny Depp have this audio that's released in I think early 2019, where they're arguing, and a lot of people were asking me to react to it. People are saying, you know, you should do an episode about this fight between Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. If you don't know, they were to, they were together. They're two actors that were in a relationship together, and they had a kind of a well publicized uh, divorce. And uh, and she Amber Heard accused Johnny Depp of being domestic violence, and there was all this kind of uh, you know people were like Team Amber, they were Team Johnny, and. And then this audio comes out of the two of them fighting, and they talk about their violence. And I think Amber Heard released the video or the audio to the public. Not sure. Anyway, she was the one recording. Anyway, I don't know the full story, but I get all these emails. They're like, oh, you know, you should probably you know, do an episode about this. And I thought, hmm, what if I did a reaction uh, to this? My cat wants to chime in. The other interesting thing about this time was – People were emailing me the day it came out. And so I had a, a day where I could dedicate myself to actually doing an episode about it. And I didn't have an episode ready to go for the next day. And so it was this weird – normally when people email me, they're like, hey, you should do an episode on this thing. And if it's a timely thing that's in, in the news – by the time I get around to recording an episode about it and by the time I get around to posting it, it could be like a month or two later. And you'll hear me do this a lot of times. You'll hear me say something like, so I know this was in the news three months ago, but I'm finally getting around to this. Because a lot of times, uh, especially you know, since I'm a full-time university professor, I'm recording these episodes when I have time. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll be like, okay, I have three days off. And so I'll just record five to 10 episodes in those three days and I'll post them so that I, I'll be good for the next three weeks, that kind of thing for the audio episodes or video episodes for that matter. Well, this is one of the rare moments where I actually was like, huh, 
This just hit the internet news cycle today. I could record an episode today and record it and post it tomorrow and really hit the wave at, at its crest, you know, when everyone's searching online for this topic. And I, I thought, hmm, that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, part of this. And so I thought, well, you know, let's give it a shot. And I listened to it. I made this reaction-style audio episode where I would listen to a little bit and then I would talk. And, and you know, I, I kind of liked it. It, it. it really brought out a different sort of episode for me where I wasn't just giving examples. Like, you know, for example, when I talk with a client and they do this, I was actually reacting to a real uh, couple as they were fighting. And it, I could get into the nuances about the way they're communicating and how they're communicating and you know how, what they're alluding to and what their feelings likely are. I could really get into the specifics about all the things that I talked about before. And I posted it and I thought, well, you know, best case scenario, we see a little bit of a bump. At that point, I think we were getting like on YouTube, we're getting like 500 views on an audio and then – um, you know, I don't, I don't know how many were listening on their phones, but I don't know, maybe a couple thousand, maybe two or 3,000 people were listening. So we, we probably had a, a total audience of maybe 5,000 people at the most. So on YouTube, I'm thinking, well, if we get a thousand views on the first week or something, then, whoa, that'll be a big deal. So that's kind of what I was hoping for. Now, uh, so rewinding a little bit even further, occasionally this would happen to me in other ways, like when uh, Finding Neverland came out from, you know, the Michael Jackson documentary. Me and Berto did an episode about it, posted it. I was thinking, well, you know, a lot of people are Googling, Googling it. And people did listen to that episode more than others, but still not a lot. You know, maybe like uh, 1,500 people would would listen on YouTube. And believe me, uh, that's a big deal to me. A thousand people listening to an episode, my goodness, especially when, when I think about in the beginning, no one was listening to my podcast. So, you know, I wasn't concerned with it. I was really quite happy. But I but I wasn't a YouTube thing. You know, the, the YouTube audience was, compared to regular YouTube channels, basically zero. You know, anyway. So I posted it, and it does much better than even my wildest dreams. It, I don't know how how many views. It probably had like 15,000 views or something. I can't remember. But it was a lot more than normal. Um, and let me back up even further. So by that point, uh, I had said – I had asked Stacy to actually help me with the podcast. Um, so let me back up even further. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why I want to tell this story. I just feel like I do. And I'm sure this is boring, but I, I just want to tell a story and I'm almost done. So let's, let's just power through. I was, uh, so since the beginning of this podcast, all I have ever wanted to do was do what I'm doing right now, but usually with someone else where I'm sitting slouched over, hunched over a microphone, talking about various different things. And then that's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't want to deal with posting the episodes. I didn't want to deal with artwork or websites or Facebook pages or Instagram, blah, blah, blahs or Twitter. I just, I never wanted to deal with any of that stuff. Now, in my personal life, 
I actually really love Facebook with my family and my friends. So I'm not one of those people. I'm not like a Luddite who still has a flip phone camera like my younger brother does. But I actually, you know, I take pictures of my food and post them on Facebook. I, With my friends and family, I'm really into that sort of stuff. But there's something about just all the the chores involved when you have social media obligations. And early on, Berto was like, well, we need to have a website. And I was like, do we? And Berto was like, yeah, we have to have a website. I'm like, ah. Oh. And I'm like, okay, Berto, if you make the website, then fine. But I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have to do anything about it. And then, of course, that eventually blossomed into me doing all the website updates, which, of course, was every week and blah, blah, blah. And then I told you a story about doing, posting stuff on YouTube, and I didn't want to do that in the beginning. I didn't want to have a Facebook page. Um, I really struggled back and forth with Twitter over the years. I would sort of start a Twitter account, and I, I didn't understand Twitter and get it, so I'd cancel the, the Psychology and Saturday Twitter, Twitter account. So as things were growing, and as, of course, social media keeps growing and growing and growing, a couple years ago, I thought, I can't do this anymore. I don't like this part of the job. I... I like to dip in and out of social media, but I don't want to manage it. There are times when I love to interact on social media, but I don't want to have to hover over it the way that you have to when you're dealing with these things. So I hired, I, tr- I tried to hire a marketing firm and I had meetings with the, you know these various different marketing firms and they would uh, put together these proposals for me and at the time, the podcast wasn't making enough money to really justify that, but I thought, well, I don't know. I just can't. I just don't because it's just it was just me. Berto, he, you know, he would show up and talk into the microphone, but he would just go home, and I it was all the rest of it was just me by myself. I did all. I did everything. I did all the. Eventually, I put. I made the, the our website. Berto didn't do that. And I was just getting so tired of all of it. I wanted to hire. I wanted to hire someone to do all that for me, and so this marketing firm. And but nothing ever seemed to really make me feel good about hiring marketing firms. There was this one that I almost hired, but the more I got into it with them, the more I just felt like they didn't understand podcasts. I felt like they thought I was some form of like Instagram uh, influencer sort of thing. And I'm like, no, I'm a podcast. People listen and they're like, well, you know, your website looks so bad. And I'm like, well, I don't think people care. You know, people are listening on their, anyway, (laughs) people always complain about our website. I think it looks fine. Anyway. um, So I, I pulled out and I didn't hire the marketing firm. And then I thought, and then it just occurred to me, why doesn't Stacy, my wife, do this? I'll ask her. Now, she doesn't know anything, or she didn't really know much about Twitter or any of that stuff. But I thought, well, she's smart, and so if she's willing, maybe she'll just learn all of it. <laughs> and so I asked her and said, you know, you don't have to do too much, but because she, she has her career and all her jobs and everything. And so she agreed to it, and I, I was like, okay, you know. And so by this point, by the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp thing came out, Stacy was pretty involved in the day-to-day of the podcast. She would post by, – by now she's posting the episodes. 
she's moderating the comments. She's, you know, she's dealing with stuff. And so the two of us could kind of talk about it together. And as the numbers on YouTube were coming in and we're going like, whoa, we're getting like a lot of views compared to our own very unpopular <laughs> normal videos on YouTube. And Stacy and I could talk about it. And it, the fact that I had someone I could talk to about it, like with Berto, him and I, we're not, we don't talk every day. And so we're not, and plus he just doesn't know what's happening <laughs> because he just, you know, he just, he does, he can't like, cause he's just not involved in, in on that granular level. And so, but with Stacy as a, you know, essentially a team member of the podcast, we could talk about it and sort of strategize together. She'd be like, oh, well, maybe you should do more things like this. And I'd be like, really? You know, and she, yeah, I think, you know, that, da, da. okay. So, so that planted a seed with, with that, the Amber Heard thing. All right. So then, so remember, I, I'm getting the, the, the discord, which led to YouTube Q&A, which led to the video cameras and Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm thinking about Twitch and then the lights and then the live show. And so then the pandemic happens and we have a lockdown and everyone is watching TV and everyone is talking about this new reality TV show on Netflix called Love is Blind and how great it is. And so in my head, I'm, and I am now no longer commuting to the university. So I have, I have extra time. I'm not socializing at all. So I have extra time and I'm thinking, well, what do I, I you know, what do I want to do with myself? There's gotta be something I can do. And I go, like, well, what if I, what if I made, you know, and people were, were emailing saying, Hey, you got to do episodes on love is blind. And I thought, well, what if I experimented with doing reaction videos to Love is Blind? You know, I wonder, I wonder what that would be like. Because I watched a little bit of the show and I thought, hmm, there's a lot I could say about what's happening on the show. And so I sat down and I had very bad, at a very bad cheap webcam. I had a very bad haircut at the time and a very bad goatee at the time that I was experimenting with. I had a very bad background and very bad lighting. <laughs> like if you look at those early reaction videos, you know, but I was like, I don't want to waste a bunch of time on lights and all this other stuff. It's like, just turn on. I just want to turn on. I don't, you know, so I make a reaction. I make reaction videos to love is blind. And I'm thinking maybe it'll do, you know, it's not going to, it can't do as well as the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp stuff, but maybe it'll, maybe it'll do better than other kinds of videos. And, you know, probably these videos will go nowhere because to rewind a little bit also, I've been doing the podcast for 12 and a half years and I've experimented with a lot of things in those 12 and a half years. I've done episodes where we review restaurants. We go to a restaurant and we just talk about the food. That's all we do. And that didn't work. <laughs> I've done episodes where we talk about a particular topic and I think maybe this will take off and it doesn't like almost nothing, nothing ever took off. You know what I mean? It was always like the overall gist of the podcast would grow over time. But um, anyway, uh, so I did these reaction videos. I posted them and I thought, you know, who knows, maybe they'll get some extra views. The views were off the charts on our 
uh, on our uh, sort of normal. Uh, let me put this a different. Way. We had a lot more views than we did normally, much more than even the Amber Heard Johnny Depp video, which I'm thinking just got like fifteen thousand views on YouTube. I was getting so many more views all of a sudden, and I clearly had tapped into something on YouTube, which I did not know existed. I did not know that reality TV, of course I knew that people watched reality TV, but I never watched it. There's only a a couple shows that I kind of watched, but it just was never my thing. After watching a lot of it now, I get why people watch it, though. (laughs) You know, I was one of those judgy people on the outside going like, ah, reality TV, it's so stupid. It's all fake and da-da-da. You know, I I just, I was one of those people. And, uh, you know, but most of the time I just didn't have it on my radar. I had all these other things I wanted to watch, and it just didn't really register to me. Anyway, so I post it, and I'm just getting huge views. And and remember, Stacy is a part of the podcast now. So she is now, uh, and we're locked down. So we we only have each other to socialize with. So we're stuck at home 24-7, and we're going on walks with our dog. We didn't have our puppy at the time. And there's nothing else to talk about. So all we're talking about <laughs> is what's happening with our YouTube channel. And we start thinking about, well, what else should we do? And remember that she now is looking at the comments. So actually, let me back up even further. So when I first started posting episodes on YouTube, no one commented because no one was watching. Then as we got a little bit more views, you know, maybe one or 200 people uh, clicking on it, most of the people coming by would not be a fan of me. They, this would have been the first thing they would have ever listened to. And there were just a lot of really mean comments. People saying like, get to the point, or this guy's voice is annoying, or you don't know anything about this topic. You're an idiot. Read a book or whatever, you know, just all these really hurtful things. And I get it. You know, you go to YouTube, you're, you don't, you don't expect to listen to some guy yammering into a microphone for an hour and a half, but I never wanted to post these episodes on YouTube anyway. <laughs> you know, this is when you subscribe to a podcast on your phone, when I subscribe to a podcast on my phone, I'm looking my favorite podcasts. I'm celebrating when they have a three hour episode. I'm like, yay, three hours of my favorite podcasters yammering into a microphone and never getting to the point. <laughs> Cause that's why I want to listen to it. Anyway, so at a certain point, I uh, – and I sort of vacillated back and forth over the years because, you know, we're talking about 12 years of this. But uh, in the end, I decided I could not look at the comments anymore because it was you – know, it was maybe one out of 20 comments were mean. But it was those one out of 20 comments that would literally ruin my week. I, th- someone would just say something – They'd they'd just be, you know, doing a drive-by comment, if you will. They, you know, they click on my video and they're just like, they just say something mean to me. And then me for seven days, I'm in a bad mood. Maybe that's exaggeration. Maybe like a day. But seriously, like I'd be, I'd, I'd look at the comment in the morning and the whole day I'd be off kilter. Just thinking about why would someone be mean to me like that? You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, you don't have to listen. (laughs) Like, 
there's a lot of things on the internet that I don't listen to, but I'm not going to try to put the person down for it. I'm just, I'm just going to be like, oh, well, you know, it's good for them, but moving on. But I'm not going to stop and say, I want to make that person feel bad about themselves. And I'm really thin-skinned and sensitive. And so I just had to eventually just not look at the comments at all, which essentially meant that I was not in contact with a lot of people that thought I might be. Anyway, so when Stacy came on, one of the things that I asked her to do uh, was to read the comments on YouTube and moderate it. And if there was ever anything in the comments that I needed to hear about, she would tell me and she would kind of, she would ignore the a-holes because she's like, I'm not going to give them any kind of credence. But if there's positive feedback or there's a suggestion, then Stacy would read it and she would tell me about it when we would talk about things. Okay. So now we're up to earlier 2020 and love is blind is taking off. And remember, I'm not reading the comments. Cause I don't, I can't take it, but she is. And she's saying a lot of people are liking this. And a lot of people are suggesting other shows you should watch. And, you know, every day we'd, she'd say, so a lot of people are asking you to watch this show. A lot of people are asking you to watch this show. And then the consensus from Stacy, eventually she's like, a lot of people are talking about this show called 90 day fiance. Both Stacy and I had never heard of the show. That show has been on for, I don't know, eight years or something. We had never heard of it. I, I don't think we'd ever seen an ad for it or I, who knows. Anyway, she says, a lot of people are asking you to watch 90 Day Fiance. And I'm thinking, huh, okay, I did Love is Blind. And that was that was a whole thing. Like, be, So that was a whole other thing I had to figure out was how do I, how do I record video while watching a show that is picture in picture? And how do I stop the video like it's actually a pretty complicated thing because when i watch the video i'm i'm hearing the video but i have to turn my mic off because if i have my mic on it'll echo the the sound coming from the tv show will bleed into the microphone it's kind of a thing and if i'm going to start and stop constantly i i had to figure out how to do that it's actually kind of a thing anyway and then i i edit the episodes quite a bit too like with the love is blind stuff, I had to take out a lot of stuff that I was saying because a lot of stuff I was saying was stupid. (laughs) You know, I'd watch a clip and I'd yammer for about five minutes and then I'd watch, I'd watch it back and I'd say like, ah, all that stuff was stupid. So, you know, it's not like I would just react and post, I would react and then edit pretty heavily and then post that. And it took a long time because I wasn't, every time I learn a new process for the podcast, it, there's always a learning curve where in the beginning, it always takes me 10 or 100 times longer than it will later on because of how slow I am in the beginning. You know, the, think of the first time you like knit a scarf. Well, it, you know, it takes a long time. By the hundredth scarf you knit, you're, you're blazing through the process because you just know all the different things and you're very quick. Anyway, podcasting is the same. And this reaction video art form, if you will, was very slow in the beginning. And when I, people were asking me to do other shows, I was like, oh, God, this takes forever. <laughs> like, it's, it's so time consuming and, and very laborious because, you know, I got the lights and the webcam and, oh, and I would lose so many clips because I won't go into the weeds on the technology of all these recordings and everything, but 
video format is still, there's still a lot of wrinkles to be ironed out by the technology. And although I'm, I, I've, I've got like the tip top, everything in my home, it's still, it's, it's anyway, every YouTuber you watch, especially the ones that have a pretty good setup, you just have to respect how much time and effort and money they've invested into figuring out how to do that. Anyway, so people are asking me 90 day fiance and I'm like, um, I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. And Stacy's like, no, there's so many people asking for it in the comments. You don't understand. And I'm like, I'm like, um, okay, well, I guess, I guess let's try that. I mean, if, you know, if, if it's as easy as love is blind, maybe it'll be okay. So at that time it was, in, it was mid season of 90 day fiance before the 90 days. If you're familiar, this is the one with Ed and Rose and Lisa and Usman, if you're familiar. And that week, episode uh, seven had just, so season four, episode seven had just come out. And so I watched that episode and posted, took me a long time because I, because, you know, in the episodes, they skip around from people to people, right? And so I, it took me a long time to figure out how to do that video and edit it and then post it. And right away, it, we got uh, even more views than Love is Blind. Um, oh, by the way, did I mention that cast members on Love is Blind were, were tweeting about us and reaching out to us? And that was a shocker. You know, Stacey would be like, so on Twitter, Jessica is talking about how much she appreciated what you said about her, even though you said some harsh things. And someone is talking about how Mark isn't happy about what you're saying. And, you know, and I just remember just that was freaky to, to think that I would react to something and the cast members would find out about it. These people, we, you know, it's very scary, you know, because it's one thing to be this tiny little podcast where you and, you know, a couple thousand people are singing. It's a whole other thing to think that what you could say would eventually get back to those people. Anyway, so. So I'm doing Love is Blind and Stacey's saying, oh, wow, you know, a lot of people are interested in this TV show and we're getting a lot of comments and a lot of people are saying that you need to go back to the beginning because you're commenting on stuff midway through the season. You don't know where these people have come from. And, you know, there's a lot of bad feedback that comes our way. You know, people saying like, oh, you should, you shouldn't do that. You should do this or blah, blah, blah. And you have to sift through, and I'm always interested in feedback, and and to zoom out a little bit on the feedback issue, the podcast itself is 90% a result of feedback. I mean, the fact that I'm doing reaction videos at all is because people asked me to do it. The fact that I'm posting anything on YouTube is because people were bugging me to post it on YouTube. You know, every, you know, the email episodes, all basically people say, hey, talk about this. And so uh, I've always been very oriented towards, you know, what, what, what do the listeners want? And can I provide it? And do I want to? Because there's a lot of things that people will ask me to do. And I'm like, eh, that's just not really my passion. I don't want to do that. So, so a a lot of people were saying, oh, that's great. But you got to go back to the beginning. And at first, I started saying, I don't want to go back to the beginning. Because that's annoying. It's going to take forever. There's, there's six other episodes that I have to watch. 
in a short amount of time. Can't I just watch the episode that came out this week? Um, why do I have to go back to the beginning? And I remember telling Stacy on one of our walks, I was, I'm not doing that. That's, that's too much. It's too much of a, too much effort. <laughs> I don't want to put that much effort into this. Uh, I have other things to do, you know? And, um, and then, uh, she's another day kind of passes. She's like, so people are still saying you got to go back to the beginning. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to go back to the beginning. Okay. Then another couple of days pass, And she's like, people are still saying you got to go back to the beginning. And at that point, I, I, something clicked in my head. I was like, okay, fine. I'll go back to the beginning. Well, with, if you're familiar with Darcy, she goes back years. And so I said, all right, F it. I'm going back to the very beginning. And so I went to the very beginning to the Darcy story because we were like, well, you can't comment on Darcy and Tom if you haven't watched Darcy and Jesse. And so I went back. And then, of course, went back to the beginning of season four with Big Ed and all those other people. And at that point, I I was all in. I had I had jumped into the pool feet first, and I was like, okay, is that the saying, feet first, head first, whatever. I, my whole body was in the pool instead of just dipping my toes in because I was like, all right let's do this thing. And remember, I said earlier that I like to be dependable. And so once I commit to something, then I'm going to see it through. And so I had my work set out for me. But remember, we're in lockdown. This is March, April, May at, at, at this time. And so I had all this extra time to do this thing. So I was doing the regular podcast. I was working at the university full time, was teaching my classes over Zoom, I was seeing all my clients uh, remotely. I was seeing my supervisees remotely and I was doing this stuff in the evenings and would sometimes record these reaction videos till one in the morning, you know, and it shows with some of them. I'm, I'm really quite loopy in some of them, but anyway, um, and then that did pretty well too. Uh, and remember a good video for me in the olden time, you know, in February of 2020, was like a thousand views. And now I'm getting like, like hundreds of thousands of views. So instead of a, a thousand view, like awesome episode, like, Oh, I crested the thousand mark, you know, now on some, uh, on some of our videos, we're looking like we might get a million views. We haven't, we haven't no video at this point. We have a million views, but some of our videos have like, you know, eight, eight, 900,000 views. Uh, and it was, overwhelming, you know, and people, cast members, Ash, you know, reached out to me and others and, um, people were reaching out to me for comment and articles and lots of people wanted to interview me on the radio, on their podcast. They wanted me, you know, they're making a Tiger King documentary. They were doing a follow-up and they wanted me and that because I was famous on YouTube and, and remember Lockdown, no socializing, me and Stacy going on walks with the dog. And half the time, this is all we're talking about. We're like, oh, look at that. Well, you know, maybe, we should, maybe we should do merch, you know, maybe, maybe we should start doing merch now. And, you know, and I was like, Stacy, how about you? You're an artist. How about you just, just figure out the whole merch thing? Because every time I would try to, that's a whole other thing. Anytime you see merch, that a, that a podcast puts together, it is a pain in the butt. Uh, I, I don't know all the annoyances that Stacy has gone through, but I've, I've received little updates along the way. 
it is a lot harder than it seems, um, especially designing it, right? You have to essentially design something that people would want to buy, you know? Anyway, so uh, it was a very interesting time. And then I said, okay, well, I guess now as a part of the podcast, this is now my life. And, and I was happy about it because I very quickly realized – that watching reality TV and commenting was a very effective, weird, weirdly so, but very effective tool of helping people to understand their attachment injuries, their attachment reactivity, their attachment needs, and relational dynamics, and various other different concepts that I've been talking about on the podcast before, but only in abstract ways. You know, you hear me talk about attachment theory all the time or projective identification all the time. And, you know, I, I'm always striving to have it be delivered in a way that's as short as possible and in a way that people understand. Psychology should not be difficult to understand. Uh, psychology to me is very easy to understand and it is usually if not always discussed in confusing ways even to experts and that's always annoyed me as a student when I would take a class I would be listening to the teacher and I'm like I have no idea what's happening and then 10 years later after studying the topic I would go oh is this what the professor was trying to explain to me? Because my God, that professor screwed that one up. And then I'd have other professors that were very good at describing things to me very quickly. And I've always wanted that to happen for others. I, anything that I know about, I'm always striving to like, how can I communicate this so that people can understand it? Because once you understand it, you can use it, man. And uh, so... I have found that watching uh, reality television, I mean, essentially what I'm watching is I'm watching human beings interact and then I'm pausing it and then I'm commenting. And it also happens to be a show that people watch. And so it's this confluence of a popular thing, this reality TV show or a reality TV show with an actual real life example of humans that I can comment on. And then me distilling down complicated ideas in psychology to educate other people so that people can use them in their own lives and that other clinicians can use them with their clients, this kind of thing. And it, it's a, it's a great thing as, as a teacher, I have been striving to find examples like this where I can show my students, right? In class, I'll say, okay, let's watch a video of, of a couple's therapy session. In my world, it is actually really hard, strangely, to find a good video of couple's therapy that, or any kind of therapy for that matter, that is actually a good, interesting session. A lot of the videos that we have in our world for clinical, you know, vignettes are just, they're cheesy or they're old or they're not well laid out or the clinician is just completely dominating the space by trying to sell everybody on their way of being a therapist. And so 
I've always been looking for videos, you know, I was like, we got to watch this. And so a lot of times, so what I did, what I did in my couples therapy class and, and other classes is I, I, I look to movies because in movies, at least you have these interactions that you can actually look at and analyze. And one of the movies that I would often show is Revolutionary Road with Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, because there's a number of interactions between the two of them that are that lend themselves mostly well to looking at how attachment works and projective identification, internalization, this kind of thing. And but it was never great because it was it's a fictional thing. Everyone knows it's fiction. And it's not exactly the way these things would have played out anyway, because, you know, when you're trying to create a entertaining movie, you're not necessarily thinking about realism. Well, the reality TV shows, although sometimes absolutely fabricated, a lot of it is genuine and you can tell, especially the shows that I've reviewed. You can tell, like with Married at First Sight, with 90 Day Fiance, for the most part, definitely Love is Blind. You can tell these people are genuinely invested in these relationships. Now, are some of them, if not all of them, at least somewhat interested in being famous or making sure they look good in front of the camera? Sure. But I've seen a lot of different people act in relationships, and I can tell, or at least I'm guessing with you know some education behind my guess, that it's genuine. Anyway, these videos are way better videos to demonstrate these concepts than every other video I have available to me in my psychology library at my university. No joke. Like for those of you who know, like emotion focused therapy, you have Sue Johnson, her videos on couples therapy, in my opinion, are not as good as us watching in class 90 day fiance or couples therapy on Showtime or clips of Love is Blind, and then talking about what we're seeing. To me, it's so much more educational to watch actual human beings actually having issues with each other, and then you comment on what's happening there. You know, Like the show Couples Therapy uh, on Showtime, which some of you have known, I've done some reaction videos to, and I plan to do more, is I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to, you know, get permission from the university to show those clips in my couples therapy class that I'm teaching soon. Anyway, so that happened in 2020. And uh, I hope that it was worth all that, all those details of like how I was adjusting to video, because if I hadn't adjusted to video for the previous year, you know, the YouTube live stuff, which was prompted by the discord stuff. And if I wasn't used to video and people asked me to do a love is blind reaction video, I wouldn't have done it because it, I would have said, well, I've got to figure out webcam. I've got to figure out OBS. I've got to figure out how to do lighting. I've got to get a better background. I've, you know, I'd just be like, ah, screw it. So all this, you know, or if someone had asked me to do the reaction video and I hadn't done the Amber Heard Johnny Depp audio episode, I probably wouldn't have done it because I would have thought, well, who wants to listen to that? No one wants to listen to me just watch something and react to it. That's, that's dumb. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, most people like episodes where I do a ton of prep and then I come with all these notes, you know, that I'm like I prepared to go. I don't, 
spontaneous yammering doesn't usually work out well. And so there were all these little things that contributed to me being open and having the technology and the know-how for sitting down in March or April, whenever it was, to do the Love is Blind reaction videos and posting them. I mean, again, even the fact that I was on YouTube was because a a student of mine years prior said, you need to put your episodes on YouTube. What if I'd never even done that? I would have been like, well, I've got to create a whole YouTube channel. And, you know, so there were just so many different things. And again, because Stacy was on board by then, because I didn't like the marketing firm, she was looking at the comments. I never would have done 90 Day Fiance. I probably just would have done Love is Blind and never did anything ever again. But because she was reading the comments and she could kind of get a gist of like, well, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to watch if you do X, Y, and Z. And so, so many little things contributed to it. Now, uh, on one hand, it's great to have a lot more viewers, a lot more fans, if you will. Of course, you know, that feels good. (laughs) You know, fulfills my narcissistic supply, as as Emily would would say. and because uh, we would joke around about that. She's a listener. Anyway, point is, is that, yeah, it feels good. It feels gratifying to be like, oh, wow, you know, more people are interested, you know, more people are, are excited about this. But the core of this, so none of that would carry the day or would motivate me or give me the passion that I do about this. What gives me passion is, like I was saying earlier, is this gives me the opportunity to help others through the internet. There's a lot of stuff on the internet. A lot of it is entertaining. Some of it's news-based. Some of it is, you know, sensation-based. Some of it's harmful. I want my mission in life, you know, the, the minute I am about to die, I want to be able to say that I tried to make the world a better place. And if this is how I'm going to do it, then this is how I'm going to do it. If it, if it wasn't this, it would have been something else. You know, it was, it was with my clients, which I got a lot of, got a lot of gratification from, or the students. So I could help them help others. That gives me a lot of gratification. And then through this, I reach an even larger audience, you know? And so that, that gives me the passion. That's why I do this thing. And it's exciting to think that so many people have now been exposed to the ideas of psychology that I love, that so many people have been um, inspired to go to therapy, that so many people have been inspired to be compassionate towards others, that so many people have thought about their own attachment reactivity and their attachment style with their partners or any relationship. You know, it's, it's just, it's just really great. Um, so a little bit more about 2020, uh, backing up to, I think 2019 ish, I put out a call for interns because I thought, well, we have, you know, we have enough listeners now and, and there's a lot of different things that there's so many tasks, you know, I've been complaining this whole time about how there's, there's so many tasks that you have to do on the podcast. And, and I thought, well, maybe interns could help, you know, if, if there are people that just, want to help and and then maybe if they do well for a while then we would hire them you know something like that and i would talk with stacy about this and i i got a 
a handful of people, maybe, I don't know, five to 10 people contacted me and said, yeah, you know, I'd, 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 I love the podcast and I, I have experience in media and I'd love to help in this way. And there, and with about half of them, I, uh, you know, followed up with them and, and we worked on how they could help. Some people were putting together notes, you know, I would say, Hey, you know, put together notes on this topic and then I will use those notes as a jumping off point for doing episodes. That process didn't work well at all. There's something about, I have to do it. I have to do the research myself. If I get notes from someone else, it, it doesn't really get into my head. I need to do the research myself. I thought if someone gave me notes, it would help, but it didn't. Other people reached out and said, you know, I could do your social media or I could do your website or, you know, we could do these kinds of things. But the person who really stuck out was Colin Miller. And, uh, but he was just one of many who reached out in the beginning. And he was just one of the possibilities in the beginning. Uh, but he stuck out primarily because he thought like I do, which is someone who has a lot of ideas. You know, when he uh, is bored, it's pretty clear he just like thinks up ideas about creative ideas to do in various different things, including and when you when he puts that creativity to this podcast, you know, so he had a lot of different ideas and and he typed up this document. He's like, okay, I'm going to send you this document of all the different ideas I have for psychology in Seattle. And he had like, I don't know, 15 different ideas and, and pretty good explanations for each idea. And I remember being really impressed by that. I was like, huh, that's interesting. He has a lot, you know, most of these ideas are not great, but he was fine with that. He's just like, look, I'm throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. And if I'm going to be a, a good support person to you, then, you know, you have to shoot stuff down. But if anything intrigues you, let's talk about it. And he had, he had these ideas for like live events and episodes and other things that he could do. And he just had a ton of positive energy and he... Uh, was you know a delight to work with and but still i was like uh i don't know if this intern thing is really working out because with other interns it just didn't it it ended up being more work for me because i would have to manage them and talk to them and (laughs) explain things to them and it just felt like ah screw it i guess i have to do everything myself but anyway but Colin eventually, I don't really know the whole progression. I'm sure he, he would have a whole kind of story. But eventually he was like, what if we did an episode on on this movie or this TV show or something? I can't remember the first thing we did. But but I was like, okay. And I think he said, I'll do all the prep. And then you, Kirk, you could just chime in like Birdo. And I thought, oh, that sounds great. I won't have to do anything. I could just be like Birdo and just show up and talk. That would be fantastic for me if the episode turns out okay, because you just never know. And I don't know if that was exactly what happened. But anyway, Colin came on the podcast. It was Colin and me and Umberto, and we talked about a movie. And I just remember being very impressed with Colin. The way he talked about movies, He very sophisticated mind. He just, he had a very, oh, maybe it was The Lighthouse. Maybe that was the first episode, that movie that I hated that he liked, uh, that I, I think I, anyway, uh, and I just remember thinking I was so impressed. He, Colin, talked m- way more sophisticatedly than me and Berto did about these kinds of things. And I just thought, oh, you know, maybe with movies and TV shows, we, we could have Colin. And so we did that a few more times. Colin kept at it. He kept throwing stuff out there. I was just like, okay, what if we did this? And what if we did that? What if we did live shows? And 
So then he convinced me that we were going to start to do in-person live shows in Seattle. And he was going to fly up from Texas every time and eventually move up here. And he was going to, we were going to do live events every month. And I thought, that sounds great. As long as I don't have to do anything and Colin, you do everything, you know, cause the previous live events that I had uh, planned took so much time and effort. It was such a pain in the butt. And so thinking about someone else doing all of it, I was just like, great. You know, as long as you know that not a lot of people are going to show up at first because there's just not a lot of fans, one and two, not a lot of them live in Seattle. So, but he was cool with it. Well, then the pandemic happened and we actually had a live event, I think planned for April or something. And the pandemic happened. So we, so that, you know, put the kibosh on that. And we would continue to talk and then sometimes we'd sort of socialize over texting and this sort of thing. And eventually Colin just became more and more part of my life. <laughs> and then I thought, you know what? There's so many, especially as the podcast was growing this past year, right? With the reaction videos and stuff. I was like, well, what, what else could I sort of delegate? And Stacy was getting overwhelmed with all the various things. And I was like, okay, I think we need to add another person to the team and I thought, well, Colin, you know, he seems pretty good. And so so uh, we're going to hire Colin starting January 1 of, of 2021, and of today. Actually, this episode comes out today on the, his first day at work. <laughs> and that's exciting. He's a great guy. I know a lot of you out there know him well from the Facebook fan page and also as being a guest in the ep- on some episodes. And He's a real special guy, very nice guy, very smart guy, very talented guy, and has a lot of interesting things to say. And so I'm really excited about that. I hope that over time his role can um, increase because we're starting him out with pretty limited role because I I don't know what to do. Uh, This is the first employee, essentially, we've had. And so it's um, – but there's that. You know, that's a big deal too. When when you get big enough that – you like hire people. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a momentous year for the podcast in that way. The other thing I'll say, and then we'll go back to emails. Even though I think this episode is um, almost two hours long at this point, but you know, lately I you know like for the Christmas episode, it was like three hours. Sometimes you know I just say screw it. You know what? Most people are probably aren't going to listen this long, but. Um, some people will. And if you're one of those people, then, you know, let's just do this thing. <laughs> I've committed. I want to be dependable. And I said I was going to answer emails. I've only answered one so far. Anyway, the other, thing, the other announcement I want to make, and I'll probably make this announcement again if I forget I've made it here, is that I am actually um, changing to adjunct at my university. So I... When I first started out as a professor, I was an adjunct. If you don't know what an adjunct is, you're essentially a professor for hire and you don't have a contract. And although if the chair, if the program director really likes you, you will always be teaching, but you're not guaranteed. Um, you're, and you don't do any advising. You don't go to any meetings. You don't have an office at the university. Uh, you know, so when I was an adjunct for the first 10 years, I would drive to the university, I'd walk into the classroom, I'd teach for, uh, you know, however long, and then I would walk to my car and I'd drive home and I wouldn't talk to any 
professors or, you know, it was just in and out and, uh, it, it had its pros and cons. Eventually I became full time at the university 11 years ago. And then you're going to a lot of meetings and then, you know, your fellow professors very well, you have advisees, you're working on accreditation and all the different nuances of a program. I eventually became program director. I was in charge. I hired all the professors. I was in charge of a, a you know, our, our program has about 200 students or 150 students or something. And so I was in charge of everything. And I didn't like that. That was just a lot of headache. And I didn't like that. So I eventually... Um, promoted someone above me that I liked, Jennifer Sampson. She became chair. She's still program director. And I stepped down to just a regular full-time faculty, core faculty. And for, I don't know, for a couple years now, I had been toying with the idea of stepping down from full-time core faculty to adjunct. Adjunct meaning I don't have advisees anymore. I probably teach less. I don't have to go to any meetings. I don't have to do anything for accreditation. <laughs> I don't have to do any of the, you know, professor, when people think, you know, because I'll say, oh, I'm a professor. They're like, oh, in their head, they just see me in front of a class teaching. Teaching as a core faculty member, teaching is about 10% of my time. The other 90% is just a lot of paperwork and a lot of meetings and a lot of dealing with the registrar and just a lot of things. Like I have to approve people to graduate. I have to look at their transcript or I have to interview students as they're coming in, or I have to work on marketing materials or these events, you know, there's all these different things. You have to go to graduation. That's another thing. And so there's, there's so much other things involved in a core faculty's job that doesn't have to do with teaching. And, you know, I, for the most part, liked it. But at a certain point, I just started to get really annoyed and burnt out with all that extra stuff. I still like teaching, but all the meetings and all the accreditation stuff and all that, I just, I just found myself, it was the same. It wasn't worse than it was before. I just found myself having no motivation for it. And I started toying with this idea a couple of years ago of just like, maybe if I switch to adjunct and it felt good to me, but uh, financially, that wasn't possible or wasn't a very good move for me. I was always waiting to see like, well, if the podcast eventually becomes financially to the point where it won't be that bad if I make that transition, then then maybe, maybe, you know, maybe that's 10 years from now kind of thing. Well, this past year, financially, the, the podcast has done a lot better. And so I decided, I thought, and, and and my burnout at the university was getting worse. <laughs> I was, again, I loved teaching. I loved working with the students. I loved working with my direct colleagues and my the couple in family therapy program. But all the other stuff, I was just finding my, I was just dragging my feet. And I found myself flaking sometimes. You know, I would get tasked with something and I just wouldn't do it because I just would procrastinate about it. And, you know, I have to talk about procrastination. People say, like, how do I get over procrastination? And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why people procrastinate is because they don't want to do it. And uh, instead of beating yourself up for, pro quote, unquote, procrastinating, how about you just acknowledge that 
you're just over it and you don't want to do it. And so I, that's what I did to myself. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm procrastinating a lot more than I normally do. And because I don't normally procrastinate at all, honestly. And I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, changing because earlier I would have said, and I would say this to people is I will probably die in my office at the university. <laughs> I would joke around, you know, people would say, how long are you going to be here? And I'd be like, uh, when I die, it'll probably be in my office. The I'll just sort of keel over, <laughs> uh, meaning that I I plan on you know being a fac- full time faculty member until until I can't possibly do it any longer. Probably you know well into my eighties, probably right. Well, it was a so it's a pretty big change for me to consider not being full time at the university anymore. And then again, it coincided with a lot more work on the podcast and more financial freedom because of the podcast. And so I decided not too long ago and, you know, handed in my letter of resignation that will be effective come July because, you know, everything moves at a snail's pace at a university. And so come July, I will just be an adjunct and... I will teach less, but that will be all I'll do at the university. I won't have to do any of the other stuff, and I won't have to be annoyed with any of that other stuff. But what that means is that I am completely dependent on the podcast (laughs) to pay my bills, which is terrifying to me. But I've told myself that, you know, if something weird happens, I can always just take on more clients or something. Uh, or I can take on more supervisees, or I could ask for my full-time job back at the university. I don't, I doubt they'd have one for me right away, but maybe at some point they would. Anyway, so I, 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 have, a, I have the privilege of that flexibility, which is, you know, really quite wonderful and, and special. And I appreciate that a lot. And I appreciate all you patrons and for giving me this opportunity. It's because of you that I can do this. What this means is I can dedicate even more time to this podcast because up until this point, my primary job has been full-time faculty member at the university. Come July, 2021, I will be a very part-time teacher at the university, you know, maybe teaching one class at a time. And I'm also scaling back. I've been scaling back my practice for years now, and I'm actually also stopping I'm closing my supervision practice starting today. I I told my I, I made that choice about six months ago, and I told all my. So if you don't know, you know, therapists uh, in my field when they graduate, they're not done being supervised. They in order to practice, they need to be supervised. So their education extends beyond graduation, graduating with their masters, and so when you're in private practice, you won't. You know, when you work at an agency, you have a supervisor, but when you're in private practice, you don't have a supervisor, so you have to hire someone so that people would hire me. And so, you know, I've, I always had, I don't know, 10 or 20 supervisees, and that was a pretty good part of my income, right? Because, you know, it's not cheap. <laughs> Supervision isn't cheap. And the majority of my uh, private practice was with supervisees. So when I, uh, when I would, you know, see, clients, so to speak, most of them were supervisees. And then I had a small group of clients that I would see anyway. Well, after 20 years of supervising, and I've literally written a book about the only book I've written 
was about supervision because I'm so passionate about supervision. For some reason, starting about a year ago, similar to my burnout at the university with the admin stuff, I was getting burnt out on the supervision stuff because although I love supervising people and help mentoring them and doing all the kind of mentorship that you do as a supervisor, in order to be an effective supervisor, you have to be up on all the legal stuff and all the ethical stuff you know, telehealth stuff you got to be up to date on, how to market people's private practices. There's just a lot of extra stuff. And I found myself getting burnt out on that too. And so I decided to close my supervision practice. And I also have another practice where I supervise supervisors. So in order to become a double AMFT approved supervisor in my field, you have to have supervision on your supervision. <laughs> and so... That was, a, that was another thing that I did as a part of my career was I would get paid by supervisors to supervise their supervision, if that makes sense. Well, I closed that as well because of the burnout. You know, you do anything for 20 years, you just eventually, I think, just decide, oh, I think, I think the time is up now. Now, having said that, I don't think I'm ever going to have that with the podcast because the podcast is completely my creation, and I do whatever I want. So there's not a lot of careers where you can say that, right? Where if you don't want to do it, you don't, you don't have to do it. And so I can't imagine getting burnt out in that scenario. Also, the podcast has so many aspects to it and so many different avenues that I have gone down and, and could go down that I just can't imagine this ever getting, I just can't imagine ever being burnt out on it. The, the thing I could imagine myself getting burnt out on would be the all that little stuff that I talked about earlier about like all the admins. There's a lot of admin stuff that's still basically I have to do. You know, Stacy helps, Colin helps a little bit, but I'm probably still responsible in doing 90 to 95 percent of everything on this podcast. Oh, maybe 80 percent of everything on the podcast. And some of that stuff, most of that stuff is not me creating content. Most of that stuff is just behind the scenes, paperworky, dumb stuff that I maybe, maybe I hire someone to do all that kind of stuff. I don't know. But yeah, so I am uh, no longer going to be full time. Now, to you listeners, you're not going to notice any difference probably because I'll still be a professor. <laughs> I'll just be an adjunct professor. But to me, it's a huge deal. To me, this is a humongous change, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to have to get my own health insurance, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, to not be, because uh, the other thing is at Antioch, I am, you know, I, I, I was a student there in the mid 90s. And then I've, I've been working there at an ever increasing rate since 1997. And so I'm I'm the veteran in the building, you know, because the people that were above me, they've all retired. And so I'm I'm one of the only people in that building that knows what it was like even just five years ago. I'll, like there's been this huge turnover and the programs in psychology have really blossomed over the past uh, five, ten years. And so that there's a lot of new faces. And so for me to leave, it's this it's a pretty weird thing because I'm like. People just think like I'm this, uh, I'm a part of the furniture at the university, if that makes sense. 
And so, but I'm not leaving. I'm still an adjunct. And I, I keep reminding everyone about that. They're like, oh, I'm so sad to see you leave. And I'm like, I'm not leaving. I'm still teaching. I'm just not going to come to these dumb meetings anymore, <laughs> which I really, uh, so I think another factor in sort of the final nail in the coffin was the lockdown. Not being able to see people in person, my colleagues, really made the job a lot worse. Not being able to have that kind of com- that easy camaraderie that you get when you just see people in the hallway. I mean, there were staff people. So there was a huge turnover in a lot of the professors. But a lot of the staff people have been working. You know, there's two staff people, Michelle Honey and, and Margaret Connolly. The two, the two of them have been working at Antioch for, I don't know, like 30 years or something. And I would see them every day. I'd walk down the hall and their desks weren't too far from my office. And I'd say hello. And we occasionally we'd sort of catch up and all that was gone once, you know, the lockdown happened. And so I think that really just drove home like, yeah, I just, and then when of course the podcast got more popular, it, it all coincided for me to be like, I think it's time to pull the plug. If the lockdown hadn't happened, I'm guessing I would have made this transition in the next five years at some point, but the lockdown definitely accelerated it. It definitely was like, yep, it's time. Um, the other thing that actually, while I'm on this topic, uh, was another nail in the, in the coffin was my uh, dealing with agencies. So a big part of my job is supervising interns. So I supervise postgrad clinicians, but I also supervised I, at all times uh, pre-grad interns who are they're they're just starting as therapists. I'm with them at their you know when they see their very first client. And I and I supervise these students for their entire internship, which usually is about fifteen months, sometimes longer. And so, I was very intimate with these interns, and they intern at agencies that are in the community. So there's mental health agencies in the community, and these mental health agencies, for various reasons that I'm not going to go into, and you people who work in these agencies know this, they have a lot of problems. They don't treat their interns very well. And there's just a lot of problems. And I could go into some specifics, but I have always dealt with that and I take it very seriously. And when, when, some, when an agency treats one of my interns badly, I get very angry. Anyone who is in my um, case consultation class knows this. Any, any supervisee of mine knows that when agencies screw with one of my interns, I get angry because... One thing is, is as y'all know, I'm just very justice oriented and I get real triggered when there's injustice happening. And the other thing is, is I have power, you know, I I've been around a long time and I know that I have power at the university. And so when someone is treating, when, when I'm, when I'm in charge of someone and when I'm responsible for someone and I take supervising very seriously and someone messes with, it sort of be like if if someone messes with your grandma, I often actually, this, this thought always pops in my head. My dad told me the story one time he was on the airplane with his mom and, you know, my grandma, and she would have been in her eighties or nineties. She's a very small Japanese, very frail woman, very strong in character, but very weak in of body. And they were on the airport and she, I think had reclined her chair by the way, 
10, 20 years ago, people, it was normal to recline your chair in an airplane. Now it's considered completely impolite, which is fine. But anyway, my grandma reclined her chair. I think that's what it went like. And the guy behind her got real upset and started like um, yelling at her or something or grabbing her chair and like pushing it forward. And my dad said that he was real close to just going ballistic at 30,000 feet on this guy, just like pummeling this guy. And I thought about that. I thought, yeah, I, if anyone messed with my grandma, she, she lived to be 101. She died a few years ago. But, um, if I thought, you know, yeah, if anyone even came close to messing with my grandma, all bets are off. I don't care if I go to prison for two years no one's going to mess with my grandma like that. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> I don't care who you are or what my grandma did. You are not going to mess with my grandma. Well, I I think y'all might be able to understand. Like if you have your own kids, you, you, your five-year-old kid gets bullied at school. Like you get, you get upset because you love that person. And also y- you have the power to do something. And so when people were messing with my interns, I was getting real upset and I would go after these, these agencies. And, you know, sometimes I could affect change and change and sometimes I couldn't. And I would watch these interns suffer. And, you know, you know, it's just a phase of career. Everyone graduated and everyone, you know, eventually moved on with their career. But so it wasn't like a make or break kind of situation for the students. But I, I would have students who would tell me that because of the way they were being treated at their agencies, they fell into a deep, deep depression, one that they had never felt before, one where they are actually thinking about suicide and they're curled up in a fetal position every night, crying themselves to sleep, literally. And this is, you know... Interns, students really care about what they're doing, and they're so desperate for any shred of acknowledgement in the beginning of their career, and to be treated badly by their agency, even when I'm telling them that they're being treated unfairly, it still gets under their skin, you know? And so that part of my job was really getting old to me, having to just constantly push back on these agencies for the for the way they were treating my interns. Not all of them, many of them treated them fine, but it's terrible supervisors, abusive supervisors, terrible practices. Even on like COVID when when that came out, a lot of these agencies were put in and a lot of you emailed to me putting their clinicians and clients at risk. Why? You can do therapy over video, you know? Why would you why? Anyway, so, and I know there's like reimbursement issues, but that got changed pretty quickly again because of the pandemic. Anyway, so I was getting really tired and really burnt out and I found myself just not wanting to deal with it anymore. I just feel like I'm done being that sort of policeman or that sort of fighter. And so uh, that was another reason why I want to stop supervising because because that sort of stress would really get to me. And I was willing to do it for the first, you know, I've been, so the class is called case consultation in my school. And that's usually what it's called, or it's often called that. And it's where 
it's that class that the students, you know, it's usually like about five or six students and I'm supervising them as they're at their internship site for 15 months. And I've been teaching that class for, I don't know, 18 years or something. And I'm not going to teach that class either. So not only am I going to step down to an adjunct, but I'm not going to teach that class and I'm not going to supervise people anymore. Now I might, I could always go back to teaching that class or supervising postgrads, but for the time being, I'm going to teach didactic classes, academic courses, you know, theory courses, attachment theory, uh, family systems theory, applied classes, you know, like applied couples therapy, how to be a therapist classes. And uh, this will mean that I can just show up, I can just teach the class, and I don't have to deal with the agencies anymore. I don't have to be up to date on all the different supervision uh, details and uh, that, and I won't have to be burnt out in that way anymore. You know, I had the juice and the mojo to fight those battles for the 18 years. And I just, um, I just don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> it's time for the next batch of, of professors to, to fight those fights. Hopefully they will fight those fights. I don't know if they will, but hopefully they will anyway. So a lot of big changes. But um, you know what? Let's take a break and do, do a reset here, and then I'll answer some emails. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. A couple of things. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier that when I was going through all the people that – are notable, I guess, to me who died last year that I can remember. I mentioned that a friend of mine named Jenny had died. And I, I want to be clear that I haven't talked to her in a long, I haven't talked with her in a long time. So when she died, I heard through social, you know, network that she had, she had died uh, mysteriously. And uh, so I, it wasn't a huge loss for me personally. It was obviously a big loss to her family, but um, I, I didn't want people to be super concerned one about me and two that I might be kind of flippant about her passing. Uh, Cause I don't think I gave it much um, a th a sort of, I, di I didn't talk about it that much when I was talking about it earlier. <laughs> the other thing I want to uh, touch back, uh, circle back on is I want to thank all the people who did reach out to me, if you are listening, who did intern with me when I you know, put out the call for that. There were a few of you that were extremely nice and helpful and, and talented and had all the things. It was just that with Colin, he just persisted, I think. At a certain point, I, I actually had thought that the whole intern idea was was a faulty idea from the beginning that I just didn't know until I experimented with it. Because as I started working with people, I realized there just isn't a lot of things that people can do for the podcast that uh, would help. There's so many things about the podcast that I just have to do myself and I can't really delegate it out to anybody. Not that I can't trust people. I certainly can trust others. It, it just, there's just so many things that, if I were to delegate out, it would create more work for me just to explain it and to manage it and to 
pass along all the necessary information to the other person. And, and so, but I, I do want to thank everyone who did reach out to me. All right, let's go to your questions here. Colin actually got a bunch of people on the fan page, the Facebook fan page, to submit questions about negativity. And Colin also provided these little titles for people. Jessa is titled as Active Contributor Jessa. So Active Contributor Jessa says, When someone is negative, I find it really easy to judge and criticize them for not having a more open attitude. That said, being judgmental and critical is negative. How do you not have a negative attitude towards negative people? What is the difference between discernment and negativity? Where is the line? End of email. Well, I could say a lot of things about this, and of course, it's a case-by-case basis, but the first thing that popped into my mind is that when someone is negative or they they come across as negative to you, there there are two things. One is, is that uh, if you if you're trying to avoid being negative toward them or critical or judgy towards them, uh, properly conceptualizing where their negativity is coming from might help. Instead of seeing them as just like being purposefully negative or they're choosing to be negative, you might understand or guess or even investigate their childhood as to why negativity was helpful to them or why a schema of negativity developed due to their circumstances when they were very young. That's one thing. The second thing is, is that you say you're being negative towards their negativity. And this might indicate that in you is a certain amount of negativity that you actually don't like in yourself. And an effective way to distract yourself from that realization is to find other negative people and to be negative towards them. This is classic projective identification where you can have the fantasy that you're not negative, that other people are negative, and you're only being negative because other people are negative. But you're still being negative. So the uh, another common projective identification is, uh, is I reject people who are rejectors. You know, I reject people who reject other people. And what you're doing right there is, is you're finding people who reject others and then you will get close to them and then you'll be very reactive towards them and you'll reject them. And then you walk away going, well, I was only rejecting because they're so rejecting. Now, those aren't the words people use. They'll say like, well, I only ghosted him because he is he's such a ghoster. Or I only broke up with him because he he rejected me all the time. You know, he pushed me away all the time. That's why that's why I that's why I'm so distant from him all the time or whatever the case may be. And it's hard to say, but sometimes a viable conceptualization is that because you were rejected growing up, you have internalized a rejecting self and, or rejecting other. The rejecting other has become part of the self and you have an urge to reject others, but you don't like the f- fact that you are rejecting. And so the ego figures out a way to mask that aspect by finding others to project onto. You find people who are rejecting and, and or are negative or seem negative to you. And then you proceed to project all your negativity, all the, all the negative aspects of yourself onto that person. And then you're very negative towards that person. So you get to not consider yourself negative, but you get to be negative, if that makes sense. All right. Conversation starter Alexis, I know good old patron Alexis, says, how can negativity be used as a defense? 
what does an individual gain by constantly having a negative outlook uh, of the world and others? Yeah, I guess this is kind of related to what active contributor Jessa was saying. If you are raised in an environment where it is easy to assume that things are – and what do we mean by negative? Maybe I should take a guess at that. I'm guessing if Jessa and Alexis were here, I could ask them. But commonly what people are referring to is like things will never work out. Why even start dating because you know, no, no one would want to date me or people these days or something like that or – why change jobs? It's just going to be pointless. It'll the, the or why go to graduate school? I'll just go into debt. It's just this stupid. Yeah, or all politicians are corrupt. There's just really no point in voting. You know this kind of thing. I'm guessing there are other examples and other types of negativity that people might be referring to. But why would someone be negative, and and why would they develop it as a defense? Well. Let's say you're growing up and you are positive. You are optimistic as a two-year-old. You hope that things will work out. You hope and believe that your your parents or caregivers will be there for you. But enough times it happens where they're not there for you or things don't work out or you aren't able to get your needs met. Well, one defense might develop or one schema might develop that you just assume that things just don't work out or that things are negative or people are negative or the negative result usually happens. Uh, it's what's the point in trying because it usually doesn't work out for me. Well, of course, that could translate into a pretty you know, solid schema deep down of negativity that would persist well beyond its useful context. Anyway, let's go on to another question. All right, this next fan page person named Nard says, can you discuss the neurobiological impact of long-term negative thinking? What are the resulting cognitions and behaviors? What are some approaches to breaking that cycle? How can we protect our own mental health from being negatively affected by others' negativity while still supporting them? End of question. Yeah, okay. So there seems to be a lot of people wanting to know, like, why are people negative? You know, I, I, I have a negative person in my life right now, and it's hard to deal with them. I, I don't understand the way that they think, and I'm trying to help them, and it doesn't seem to be working. It seems to be pretty stubborn, their negativity. Again, it really depends on what we mean by being negative. And there's a lot of other possibilities that are in addition to what I've been saying before. It's possible that they're depressed, obviously. It's possible that they're actually being very, very realistic about things and that you're being strangely optimistic or positive. There's just a lot of positive, there's just a lot of uh, other things here. It could be the way people talk. Some people just tend to talk in a very pessimistic, negative way, even though deep down they're not as pessimistic as they might sound. Uh, we also grow up, and I've found this to be true for a lot of people, we often will grow up in an environment where it's not very cool to be positive. That early on in life, when you're 12, when you're 18 years old, and you're hanging out at school, and if you have something positive to say, sometimes that will be shot down. Uh, as an example, 
I, I remember being at my high, high school graduation party. It was an all night party that we went to and it was, there was music and a magic show and all this stuff. And I was sitting with my friends and they, the DJ would play music and a lot of it. I was just like, eh, I'm not really into this, but then they played a Depeche Mode song. And as you know, I love Depeche Mode and I got real excited. And it's, you know, it's probably like four in the morning at this point. And I, I shot up and I said, and I looked at my friends and I said, DM, you know, meaning Depeche Mode. And one Depeche Mode sometimes calls himself DM. And also me and my friends, we used a lot of abbreviations for everything. There were all sorts of weird abbreviations, inside inside jokes that we would use. And that was just how we, I, I had a friend who was so good at this that he could sing entire songs by just singing the first letter of every word. Anyway, uh, and we... Uh, ironically and somewhat unironically loved the Rick Astley album that came out at the time, you know, together forever and never too far. He could sing the whole song singing just the first letter, which I found to be quite a skill. Anyway, so I shot up and I said, DM. And this girl, a classmate of mine, who I actually grew up with from like kindergarten and knew her very well, she ended up being like a just a quintessential Portland hipster. Um, she's actually in an episode of Portlandia actually, but she, uh, turned to me. So I shot up as like, DM. And I was, I was so positive. I was, I was just so overwhelmed with like, I love this song. Let's dance. And this girl looked right in my face. She's like DM. And she just, she just totally ridiculed me. And I just thought, what, what? I never forgot that. I just thought, what would possess someone to do that to someone? What would put, like, I'm, I'm not even talking to her. I didn't even, you know, we're, there's 400 kids in this hall and there's loud music playing and people are getting up and dancing and sitting down. And it's just this several hours of all this different, various different things that are happening, a magic show, little skits, you know, it's just a chaotic after a graduate, we just graduated from high school. It's a, it's an eventful night. And I stand up and I'm like, yeah, yay, DM, let's go dance. And she just looks at my face she's like DM. And I, it just stopped me in my tracks. Like it was so abrupt and so mean and so out of the blue. Cause I, I didn't even realize she was near me, you know? And I, I just never forgot that. I just thought like, what kind of misery do you have to go through to one, have that kind of negativity in your head and two, to, to bully someone else. And three, I, it wasn't like she was a stranger. We were essentially friends for 18 or not 18 years, like, you know, what, 12 years from, well, 13 years from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, her and I never had a bad, you know, we weren't enemy frenemies or any, you know, we were, we were, pals on a certain level anyway uh, i thought we liked each other and to just have that negativity in you that that just anger or something you know obviously traumas are something going on there but but anyway i i'm just wondering if everyone out there uh, has been through that and then if if you've been through a lot of that if you've been bullied a lot for being positive like I was being positive and then I was shot down because I was sticking out. You know, I, my positivity and my enthusiasm, my enjoyment of Depeche Mode was noticeable 
I was announcing it. And to be uh, positive in that way, uh, I think attracts a certain kind of negativity because it's like, one, they don't want other people to be happy if they're miserable. And two, I think that there's just a, a, a thing that goes out there when you're young where it's uncool to be enthusiastic about something. Anyway, uh, particularly in certain generations, I, I don't know if young people today are so much that way, but they were when I was young. Uh, this is before we had hipsters, but these people would eventually become the sort of the older end of the pip, hipster generation. Anyway, so I think that's another reason why people would become negative is just they've been bullied into being negative, you know. And uh, yeah, so Nard, you're saying, you know, can you discuss the neural, neurological, neurobiological impact? Well, I, I don't know. I, I, that's an area that I just don't know about. But if I was to take a guess, and from my memory of the research, that yeah, absolutely, there's a biological effect that negativity can have. Now, what do we mean by negativity? Blah blah blah. But we definitely do know, and I can. Uh, I definitely remember reading a lot of research, uh, empirical studies demonstrating that gratitude, which is a positive thing, you know, I think most people would call grat having gratitude to be a positive thing and not a negative thing, will affect all sorts of things: your stress level, your ability to recover, your ability to re- adjust your your mood, obviously, your blood pressure, your you know, I don't remember all the different outcomes, but. Having gratitude has a, a lot of really positive outcomes in terms of effects. And so uh, that's an important thing. A lot of religions are actually centered in part on gratitude, thanking God, you know, sitting down to dinner and thanking God for the meal. It's one thing to eat a meal, to enjoy. It's another thing to say, oh, my God, some people don't have meals, and thank you, God, or thank you, universe, for giving me this meal. Imagine, you know, if you did that every single time you sat down for dinner, or thanking the person who gave, who made the dinner, right? Um, or, you know, that, that's just one aspect of how religion or tradition often will have these sorts of gratitude ceremonies. And they cross all, you know, different religions have, have that kind of gratitude practice. So there seems to be some uh, wisdom around gratitude and being positive. So by extension, if you're negative, you don't get those positive things or you might get the negative side of those things. Anyway, so then you say, uh, you know, how can we protect our own mental health from being negatively affected by other people when they are negative? Yeah. And I get it. And this, by general, again, it's hard to know case by case, but the general thing that I say is that you, one, need to monitor your own well-being first, and then two, uh, take action where you can. So there's various different things you can do from small things like as they become negative, change the subject. Or just flat out say, "Hey, I don't. I I know you're kind of going to negative town right now. I'd, I don't want to go there. I'd, I'd rather talk about something else." Or you just kind of distance yourself as they become very negative in your eyes. You just you know you listen and you nod your head, but you're not getting you're not just you're not getting totally wrapped up in the conversation. Or on the higher end of behaviors, you just pull away from the person. 
because you, you find yourself being dragged down by them. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, you have to think about the bigger picture. You know, can can you be close to them? Well, you know, the th- before pulling away from someone, you probably should give them a chance, right? You probably should say, hey, I just noticed that you kind of go into this mode sometimes. I'm calling it negative, but I don't know what you would call it. And it it's hard for me to deal with. It, it actually make, takes a toll on me personally. And I don't want to tell you what to talk about, but I just thought I'd tell you because I, I don't like it when you do that. I think people should do more things like this. The times where I have done things like this with my people, it's it almost always ends up being good in the end. And, but what I end up doing is I just explode in the moment, you know, something bad will happen. And I just, I just sort of, I've been thinking about saying something to a friend and then the last straw happens and I just sort of explode and, and it still ends up turning out okay, but it would have been better if I would have been more calm in the moment and said, so I just want to tell you something I've been thinking about. Anyway, people like feedback, generally speaking. And so uh, if you are honest with them and nice enough, you know, just, just tell people, Hey, your negativity or what I'm calling your negativity is actually dragging me down. And I still want to be with you. I still want to be close to you, but I, I don't, I don't want to hear the negativity anymore. If, if you, if you just could not do that to me, you know? Um, but the other part of it is, you know, what are you doing that makes it hard for you? If someone's negative and it doesn't really impact you directly, how enmeshed are you with that person that, that you have to be dragged down by them? Now, again, that's natural to do, but it could be a question of you just having interior boundaries as you listen to someone. Anyway, uh, famous patron Lyndon says, Colin knew I was going to write this. What are the upsides of negativity? <laughs> so I guess famous patron Lyndon is saying that he's negative, I'm guessing. Um, what are the upsides of negativity? Well, depends on what we mean by negativity. Uh, but to be pessimistic can sometimes be more of a realist and can thus you can do more good things for the world. Like I'm extremely negative about climate change and I don't, according to outcomes, according to data, it's getting worse and we're accelerating the problem. You know, you've all heard people say or watched videos on how we're pumping CO2 in the atmosphere, other um, global warming gases and greenhouse gases, and we are raising the average temperature of the earth, of the atmosphere. And this is causing all sorts of changes to the climate, to the rising of the sea levels, to uh, ecosystems breaking down, new ecosystems developing. And we've all heard that. And you've all heard like, oh, okay, well, we got to reduce our our greenhouse gas emissions. Well, it, we have not it, since we have been serious. We've scientists have known about this for fifty, sixty years, maybe longer, and have been talking about it for that long. It's only just been in the past, I don't know, ten or twenty years that it's been sort of mainstream discussion. And uh, you might think, oh, well, someone's figuring. So, you know, I heard that. People are using more wind energy or solar solar panels. Yeah, that's all true. And some cities are having some good luck of being, you know, carbon neutral. An entire city is carbon neutral. 
But overall, uh, not only have we not fixed the problem, but it's getting worse. And so to be negative town about this, to be to live in negative town about this, in my view, is to be realistic. Now, what do we mean by negative? You know, maybe one negative thing is to be like realistic. Another negative thing might be defeatist and be like, well, what's the point? I might as well not recycle or plan for the future because, well, I'll be dead in 10 years or something. No, I don't know. So I suppose famous Rachel Lennon, in my opinion, to be negative, a pro is to potentially not delude yourself with delusional positivity. Uh, other benefits of negativity, I don't know. It's hard to... I'm sure famous patron Lennon, you might be able to come up with some, but it might help with art. Uh, when I have written music, I tend to write often from a very negative place, not like a pessimistic place. Well, sometimes from a pessimistic place, but I find that negativity or anger or sadness or demoralization can lead to some wonderful art and some wonderful artistic motivation and inspiration. So there's that. Another benefit to being negative might be that you can bond with other negative people. <laughs> but I don't know. Beyond that, I don't know if negativity is all that great. Uh, Kaylee has a question related to Lyndon here. I find it difficult to share my occasional negative experiences with people via social media. I often find that when I'm sharing a negative feeling or experience, I receive pushback from people telling me to be positive. These people don't allow me to have my negative feelings vindicated or seen because of what I can only characterize as forced positivity. I see this as one of the reasons why people only share good and positive things on social media. I personally think it is helpful to try and share a more authentic version of my life, and this includes sharing the downs in an appropriate way. Is some negative is some negativity healthy? Yeah. So this is why some of you are probably like, well, that's not really what I was referring to when I said negativity, because this is the first question that has really included an example of what they're referring to when they're saying negativity. Um, the word negativity can mean so many different things, and I've been trying to intuit what people are asking. But so Kaylee is saying that she or he or they feel uh, negative sometimes, meaning that they have uh, sad thoughts or angry thoughts down, you know, there's down feelings that they have and they feel compelled to post that along with the positive things and would like at the very least, just no comments, but they would like some positive comments or some supportive comments like, Oh, I've been there. Thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm thinking about you, whatever. But Kaylee is saying, I get a lot of people just being like, why are you doing that? You know, you need to be positive, you know, don't. And you'll hear people say like, uh, I have this one friend on Facebook and all she does is complain and talk about how her life is going down the tubes. And it's just like, geez, have some boundaries. You know, you'll hear, you'll hear people say that. And I've never really understood that because for this reason that Kaylee talks about of like, so it's fine to post a picture when your life is going great, but when you talk about some struggle you're going through, then that's not okay. I mean, it's fine if you're just, that's just not your thing to read. You say, you know, you have a friend that will, will weekly say something negative on Facebook, meaning that, oh, you know, I'm really struggling today or whatever. And it's fine if you're just like, eh, you know, that's a post that I don't 
care to interact with. That's fine. But to go further and to stigmatize anybody who posts that kind of thing. Now, I think most of us can identify that sort of outlier who posts negative after negative after negative thing. Again, I still wouldn't stigmatize it. It is social media. And if that's how they feel, then they're socially mediaizing to the world. And that's, that's what they want to do. You don't, you can unfollow them. You can do whatever. But, uh, the point is, is, uh, you know, why when if someone's positive all the time, that's fine. But if someone's negative all the time, that's completely like terrible. Anyway, point is, is that you should be able to express yourself however you want. It doesn't affect other people. And we do have this weird, especially I think in America, we have this weird thing about like, always be positive. And it's like, why? <laughs> I mean, it's not, uh, if you feel negative, if anything, we have, we're too positive, you know, positivity is great, but it basically stigmatizes when you're feeling bad. So for Kaylee, they're like, I, you know, I, I just want to share that. And so, yeah, I get that. And you should be able to express yourself. The bigger part here is that if you're looking for support, I wouldn't go to social media anyway. So uh, I think the way the landscape is on social media, I don't think that's going to change. I don't think the stigmatizing or the be positive messages are going to stop. But Kaylee, you do deserve to have your feelings and and get support. I just don't think you have to do it through social media. You're just going to have to actually call people and cultivate that close network of people that you talk to uh, or on the phone or in person or you text or whatever, and they can be supportive of you in that way. Movie Zoomer Heather says, is negativity the root of most depression? Even when biologically based, is this the component a predisposition to negative thought spirals and one struggle to control them are some people just incurable of negative thought patterns. So depression is pretty complicated and, uh, and unknown to some extent, because we're talking about the brain and we just don't really understand it. But the question of, are we uh, more susceptible to depression if we have a tendency to have negative thought spirals, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I, I'm guessing there's, it's not really my research area, but I'm guessing that there are some associations there. There is a personality trait that sometimes is discussed in, you know, uh, forensic psychology around being about negativity, meaning that people tend to be negative. They tend to be pessimistic. They tend to see the bad things in, when they look at something, they tend to see the bad things of that thing. Or when they look at themselves, they they tend to see the bad things, you know, the the, the intrusive thoughts or, or the automatic thoughts tend to be very negative. Why is that? Is that a is that a biological dispositional thing that you're born with? Is it something that develops as a result of your early childhood? Is a schema that develops? Certainly, I think that's you know that's definitely one of the factors. But there's a lot of different reasons why people become depressed. You can become depressed because life is depressing and quote-unquote negative. You can become depressed quote-unquote biologically, meaning that there is something different about the way your brain works or about your body such that you just become uh, – your, your, your brain changes this to a certain extent that 
motivation is very difficult and positive thoughts are very difficult. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess the thing that I can talk about, Heather, is negative thought spirals and that we do have some control over. And I always talk about this when people ask questions like this. I, I say that say that you struggle with frequent negative thought spirals or even depression in general. One of the things that you you must do if you're trying to better your life is in the moment, have a mindfulness practice that pushes back. Now, it's not going to stop it, but what it will do is it will prevent the negative thought spiral from running the show. So there's a lot of different presentations of this, but let's say you have someone who might call themselves at least mildly depressed and and they have a lot of negative thought spirals, meaning they're sitting on the couch and they're like, oh, you know, I should I should try to go on a diet or I should exercise more or I should I should get out more. I should or or what's wrong with me that I'm on the couch all day or my job is so stupid. I'm I, I made the wrong choice with the, my degree or my career or what you know, I'm such a terrible person or you know, whatever. So it just kind of gets very negative very quickly. Well, it'll feel very accurate. The negative thought spiral will feel very natural. Now when you talk to other people, they'll be like, No, there's nothing natural about what you're saying. All the things you're saying are debatable. Your career is fine. Also, you're young. You can change your career if you wanted to. So there's a lot of different ways of, of looking at it. So there, there are two things that we do whenever we're trying to change. One is, is what we can do at the moment, and the other thing is how we can heal, which is a long-term uh, goal. So to, in the moment, what we've got to do is we've got to push back. So you're sitting on the couch, and you're like, I'm a loser, or whatever you say to yourself. And unless you push back, then that thought will have total control over who you are, how you see yourself, your mood, your behavior, everything. You must push back and you must say to yourself, I'm not a loser. And here's why I'm not a loser. Now, when you push back, it's not going to feel quite right because you've had a lifetime or many years convincing yourself that you're a loser. And so to say that you're not a loser feels a little off and feels a little wrong. It doesn't feel right to you. Plus, you have a tremendous amount of traumas maybe that are informing you to tell you that you're a loser. And so in the moment, it's not going to feel very right. And you're going to say like, well, I, I f feel like maybe it is true that I am a loser, but I don't, I don't want to let that thought run the show. And so I'm going to push back on it. I would say, no, I'm not a loser. And here's why I'm not a loser. Okay. That is not going to get rid of the notion that you're a loser. The notion or the feeling that you're a loser is going to remain because that's part of the long-term goal of healing. But in the moment, the notion that you're a loser is not completely dominant in your ego. There's something opposing it or even just reaching out to other people and saying, so I, I'm feeling like I'm a loser right now. Can you try to convince me I'm not a loser? You got to do something. It's an active process. It's an active mindfulness, if you will, process where you got to push back. And it can be very hard because when you're convinced you're a loser, you're like, well, I'm a loser, though. Why push back or whatever negative thought is running the show in your mind? And so you have to push back. And whatever, whenever I work with people, they're like, but 
I still feel like I'm a loser. Even though I'm pushing back, I still feel like I'm a loser. And I'll say, yes, that will happen. And that is the long-term goal. But you must do something in the moment to push back. Otherwise, you'll 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 just get worse. You'll just be more and more convinced you're a loser. Every time the intrusive thought comes into your mind, I'm a loser, and you don't push back, the more you believe that you are a loser because no one and including yourself is there opposing it and so the bully in your mind is allowed to get real comfortable you do not want to let the negativity get comfortable in there you want to constantly harass it so that it can't get comfortable and it and it won't stay as long then you come along with long-term therapy and you heal from those past schemas and you believe deep down that you're not a loser, but over time. And then the intrusive thoughts will reduce. But part of that you can only do if you at least consciously push back. The other thing is, is that even when you're pushing back, part of you is healing anyway, because at least someone, hopefully you, and others are saying, no, you're not a loser. And you're giving all the inspiration as to why you're not a loser. Anyway, so that's what I'll say to that. Marina on the fan page says, there is a second movement in positive psychology that argues that experiences, perspectives, and emotions are often dialectical, meaning that they have the positive, meaning that the positive does not exist without the negative. People are, are usually in between these two emotions and perspectives. For instance, one author argued that anxiety is a precondition for hope, thus implying that hope is never truly positive because of the anxiety that goes with it. In a way, they argue that there is no such thing as pure negativity or pure positivity. I don't really have a standpoint on it yet because I don't want to undermine people's experiences and feelings. Dr. Kirk, what do you think about this? Uh, well, I, this isn't my area. I, I'm not a scholar of positive psychology, and I didn't know about this second movement, as you call it. But if I was to just kind of ramble for a second about this is, you know, it's it's hard to generalize to all things and all emotions. This idea, certainly we can say this is true for some things. And certainly we can say that looked at in a certain way, Yes, hope cannot exist without anxiety because if you don't have anxiety about something or at least a little bit of anxiety about something, then there wouldn't be any need for hope, right? Or there wouldn't be any the, – the feeling of hope wouldn't have a, a, a thing to hold on to. Like I don't hope that the sun rises tomorrow because I know that it will. I don't, I'm not scared that the sun isn't going to rise tomorrow morning. So I'm not sitting here going like, I hope that the sun rises tomorrow. Whereas I have a hope that we will have a vaccine and everyone will be vaccinated. And I have hope that we will be able to return to normal life where I can hug people and talk to people and go to restaurants and socialize again. I have tremendous hope and tremendous anxiety that it won't happen. And so the positive hope feeling that I have, and I have tremendous hope, but in order for that hope to exist, I must be anxious. And that is very true. So this isn't mind blowing uh, thought. And I don't know if positive psychology people would, would agree with, I don't know if this is what they're talking about, but 
perhaps it's helpful for us all psychologically to acknowledge that dialectic between hope and anxiety or between togetherness and despair and separateness and joy that, you know, the, the dialectic between joy and demoralization that in order to have joy, you must recognize that there are times when things are really bad for you. And when things go really good for you, then you, you feel even more joy. And those two things are connected. So why would we want to look at things that way? Because it's just kind of a philosophical way of looking at things in, in my view. It's not a doesn't mean that it's bad, but it doesn't mean that we're talking about something that is concrete, if you will. Well, it might help to do that because it helps us to frame anxiety and demoralization as part of a bigger whole that with anxiety comes hope, you know, to say, Hey, if you're experiencing hope, you got to recognize that you're feeling anxiety. I mean, so I guess it goes both ways and that it would help us to be more well-rounded, I suppose, in our understanding of our emotional state or what all is involved in an emotion or a behavior that we acknowledge as we're heading into positivity, we acknowledge, hey, just, you know, just know that there's a dialectic here and you're probably also feeling the negative, but you're moving into the positive in acknowledgement of the negative or something. And when you're in the negative, you can do the same. You can acknowledge, hey, as you head into the negative, you're acknowledging that there is a positive, you know, to be demoralized means that you at least had the thought that maybe you could be joyful. You know, to be sad and depressed means that you've lost or you've become disconnected or you can't seem to find, even though you want to find, positivity and motivation and connection or whatever it is that's, that's bringing you down. And maybe that can help people. You know, Jung kind of went into this a little bit from my understanding. Uh, Eastern philosophy and Yang uh, goes into this as well. And sometimes it can be a very helpful way of looking at the world. So although I don't know about positive psychology, that's how I'm responding to that, Marina. Marius says, hey, K-Man, do you believe that behind every action lies a positive intention? Do I believe that behind every action lies a positive intention? Well, it depends on what you mean by positive. Uh, I do tend to believe that people are trying their best. And from the outside, you can look at their behavior and be and judge them and and see them as doing something evil. But if you get to know them, according to my philosophy and belief system, there's something understandable. I don't know if you'd call it positive, but there's something understandable about their behavior that might not be easily determined if you just see a glimpse of their behavior. You know, someone is, I don't know, uh, on the road, you're driving on the freeway and you change lanes and you feel like you left enough room for the car behind you, but they get real bent out of shape and they start riding your butt and they pull up beside you and they're flipping you off and they're screaming at you. Okay. From looking at the behavior, just like, whoa, completely out of control, completely unfair behavior, nothing positive. What possibly could that come from that comes from a positive place? Well, for them, they might have been traumatized in some way. Often they have been, by the way. 
and their knee-jerk reaction to def- to defend themselves when they are being wronged is a positive thing. They deserve to stick up for themselves. It's just that they weren't able to when they were five or 10 years old, and now they're doing it to you on the road. It's not okay to terrorize people in that way on the road for no reason, but it is positive, I suppose, in the way that that person is finally getting a little bit of justice, even though it's not the right person. Um, also, how do you discern between negative and positive in a world where people are so diverse and their actions are often confusing? Is there an ultimate criteria of evaluation? Is negativity pessimistic, potentially abusive, or rash? There's a lot of questions in here, Marius. Um Ultimate criteria of evaluation. Yeah, so there's a lot of philosophy over many, many years that focuses on this, that we are often concerning ourselves with assumptions of positive and negative. You know, it's positive to live long, for example. It's negative to die young. It's positive to be able to feed yourself, and it's negative to starve. It's positive to have money, and it's negative to be poor. It's positive to be famous, and it's negative to be lonely. And the philosophers will look at this and say, why do we see it this way? And different cultures will look at these questions in different ways. And to assume that everyone around the world, every human, has the same associations with certain things is wrongheaded. And yeah, it's a very interesting area of study, and and the bit that I've looked into it myself influences a lot of the things that I say on this podcast. Whenever we get to certain kinds of assumptions, I usually like to call them out. I usually like to say, well, for my culture in Seattle, my society tends to see the world this way, but I don't know if every human being sees it this way, and it's hard for me to evaluate that that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, it's a, you know, interesting question. All right. On discord, there's, there's a few questions that Colin got from discord. Katie Pooh says, I keep hearing toxic positivity thrown around. Is there a clinical basis for it? If so, how do you deal with it? Yeah. So we talked about this a little earlier, but toxic positivity is basically this cultural push to be positive. It's a stigmatization of being negative, for example. So a common example, we talked about this earlier, where you're feeling negative and then you post something on social media that you're negative and you get all these toxic, positive messages of, hey, be positive, smile, you know, what's wrong with you? And uh, why are you so negative all the time when you're just looking for some validation? So, uh, is you know, you ask, is there a clinical basis for it? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's a cultural thing. <laughs> we, At least in my society, we live in a very toxic, positive society. And people from other countries come to the United States and, and they just marvel at how fake we are all the time. Now, we don't say we're fake, but we say we just don't like to be negative. You know, we, a classic example of this is, you ask someone how they're doing, and they always say, I'm fine, even though they're not fine, even though they might not be fine. Whereas you ask someone in another society, how you doing? And they'll say, oh, I'm feeling pretty bad today, even someone on the bus. So 
in our society, it's, it's considered impolite to actually tell the truth to that question. If you are feeling negative, you know, say you just found a lump in your breast and you're terrified and you haven't had the, you know, the results yet. And someone runs into you in the hallway at work and they're like, how you doing? If you stop in your traction, you just say, actually, I'm terrified that I might have cancer and I might die. That might actually be considered impolite to that person. Now, it depends on how close you are to that person. But some people be like, wow, that person needs boundaries, that kind of thing. And we ha- that's our culture. That's how we- Now, I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. I'd say it's, it's, there's pros and cons to that. The, there's definitely a con that can extend into people essentially walking around feeling like they're the only person who's scared about breast cancer when if everyone just uh, talked about things more because there wasn't so much stigma, then people would realize, oh, a lot of people are suffering. And a lot of this podcast is me trying to actually propagate that idea. We we talk a lot about suffering on this podcast, and uh, my purpose, one of my purposes is so that listeners can say, oh, I'm not alone. Most people suffering think that they're alone, particularly in a toxic, positive society like the United States. Uh, Pucolic Boys says, I have been a member of groups that have a secret friend chat where people share negative content. Within these, people either talk about other members or gossip, gossip, People will stay in these spaces for months or years, and I don't understand why. Why do people bond over gossip, cringe content, or secretly hating on a bad member of a group? End of question. That's interesting. Well, scapegoating. When you are scared of not being accepted or you're scared of losing someone, uh, a very quick answer to that problem is to scapegoat someone. So – you're talking with someone and you're talking about the weather or you're talking about whatever. And you're both a little unclear if the other person, if you really, you know, let's just stick it to you. So stick to you. So you're talking to someone and, and you're like, or you're entering a group. Let's just say you're entering into a group of like five people and you want to be accepted and you want people to like you. You want, to come across like you're cool and that you're funny and that you're easygoing and that you're interesting. And you're not quite sure how they're receiving you yet. They might even be kind of blowing you off a little bit because you're the new guy. And then someone comes along and says, oh boy. And they talk about someone else in the group behind their back. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, Jimmy, he's always negative or whatever. And then you join in. You're like, oh yeah, Jimmy, he's always so negative. Well, now... The two of you have something in common, which with which bonds you. You also have something that you can talk about that you both know the procedure for. You both know that if you hack on Jimmy, then you're playing the rules of that particular kind of conversation. And so that's comforting. It's less anxiety provoking. You also can signal to everyone, well, I'm not like Jimmy because I'm, I know everyone else, and I know that we say these bad things about Jimmy, and I'm not Jimmy. And then you are signaling, look, I'm like you, and we're together, and I'm not going to be like Jimmy, and all those kinds of things. So, And there's a lot of other reasons, too, I could go into, but those are some of the main ones. And through scapegoating, everyone's anxiety goes down because they uh, because of the reasons I said. Now it's at the expense of Jimmy, of course, and 
there's this implication that at any time anyone else can become scapegoated. You know, if you have a rule in a group of like, if someone steps out of line, you're going to talk bad behind their back. And so that's one reason why people do this kind of thing. The other reason, you know, you're asking, you know, why do they do cringe content? Well, it's just, uh, you know, people just have a certain sense of humor. And so they like to do that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, also, depending on what you mean by cringe content, it could be racist content or sexist content. And uh, people have been pumped into their heads, a lot of sexist ideas and racist ideas and other kind of oppressive ideas. And it's not polite to do those in an open. If, you know, so you can only do it behind closed doors, which is where a lot of racism and sexism takes place in terms of the overt expressions of it. All right. Well, that does it for that episode in which I respond to various different comments and questions about negativity. I'm not quite sure if I understood what everyone was asking about, but I did my best to at least yammer on after reading <laughs> your question. And thank you, Colin, for compiling all these different things. And yeah, it's New Year's Day, and we're moving on to 2021. And let's, you know, let's continue to do this thing. I have a lot of plans, mainly for deep dives for the podcast. Uh, you know, being able to not work at the university quite as much. One of the first things I think about, fantasize about is I'll be able to spend more time prepping for audio episodes. So hopefully I'll be able to do that. Also with maybe hiring more people or getting calling to do more things, I'll free up more time as well. Uh, It just never seems to work out that way, (laughs) but, but hopefully it will. I have so many, you know, I, I've talked about this before where I have this long list of deep dives that I want to do. And one of the ways that I look at it, you know, now that I turned 50 is I'm like, well, I'll probably die before I can get to all these things. So, so which ones do I want to do before I'm dead? <laughs> you know, when you have a to-do list and you're just like, yep, uh, this to-do list is going to I'll die well before this to-do list is completed, um, which is fine. I mean, psychology has a lot of different topics, and so it would be weird for someone to run out of time before they can address everything. But but it is it, it is something that I enjoy about this podcast, and uh, I've enjoyed the deep dives I've done in the past, and so I want to continue to do that. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself truly. And let's put 2020 behind us and move optimistically, but realistically into the future because we all deserve it. We really, really do. 